Welcome to the Kent Lab Podcast, featuring long-form conversations offering wisdom, hope, and community. Now here's your host, Kent Lapp. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kent Lapp, and welcome to another episode of the Kent Lapp Podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with John Farmer. John grew up in Metro Atlanta and played football at Valdosta State as a defensive lineman. He is still an avid sports fan and particularly loves basketball. He has an MATS degree from Erskine Theological Seminary and a BS in Office Administration and Technology from Valdosta State University. John and his wife, Jaquel, met at Valdosta State and have been married for five happy years. They have a four-month-old son, John H. Farmer IV. John is an assistant pastor at Emmanuel Nashville, where my family and I attend, and as an elder, I was involved with the candidating process John went through a little over a year ago. One of the things that stood out to us all along was how John thinks biblically. His thoughts often seem to find their origin or conclusion in the Bible. And if the Bible is true, that has to be one of the best things you could ever say about anyone. We're tremendously grateful to have John as one of our pastors. In this episode, John tells a story as well as his motivation for his evangelistic heart, among many other things, and we spend a lot of time discussing racial reconciliation. Before I give you my conversation with John, just a reminder that if you find this podcast interesting or helpful, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast medium. You may also be interested in checking out the Kent Lap Podcast YouTube channel. We currently have over 60 videos and counting quickly there, and you may want to subscribe on YouTube as well. Other ways to stay in touch with the show would be online at kentlap.com and on Twitter and Instagram, simply at Kent Lap. Without any further ado, I give you my conversation with John Farmer. John Farmer, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Stoked, dude. I'm stoked to have you. Yeah. You know, I actually wanted to hear how is your role as a pastor different in the last, what's it been, two weeks with all the things going on with the virus, two, three weeks? See, we were actually out of town for two weeks when all this kind of blew up. So for us, it feels a little more fresh. Yeah. But uh, for the locals, it, this has been like a month or yeah. plus now. But um, for, for whatever reason, I think it was like the, you know, when this happened and, and we couldn't meet together, like churches was one of the main things, like not just in, in like the people I'm talking to, but like nationally in the news, mm-hmm. like what are churches doing? Yeah. So I know you're not going, I know we're not having church, Mm-mm. you know, we're not meeting it in, in person. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you're even going into church to work, right? It's all remote. Well, I went today. Oh, you so snuck in? Kinda, yeah, I'd, I was itching. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Did so. you go work some from church? I did. Oh, I yeah? did. Were um, there other people there? or There's like two other people there. Okay. So it's still it's still eerie because it's a ghost town. You know? Yep. Sometimes, sometimes, especially like if it's a sermon prep week or something, yep. I'll go into church at night and, okay. and then it's like pretty dead. Mm-hmm. So, But it was kind of weird for it to be dead like that for sure in the middle of the day but i'm just curious with your role as a pastor like with ministering to people and i know that um we're doing some prayer meetings online now with zoom and things like that i'm I'm curious like how is this affecting your work what are you doing to adapt yeah it's uh it's it's affecting the work in every way you could imagine you know especially as a pastor i I was thinking about this the other day in in acts chapter six um, the I believe it's Acts chapter chapter six. The the apostles. It's the it's the first com- commissioning of 
the uh, of deacons where mm-hmm. Stephen and those uh, guys filled with the spirit are called to, you know, uh, handle the divvying out of food for uh, the, the, the women. And, uh, but, but there's a phrase in there that's said, and uh, it's the, the apostles needed to give themselves to basically the study of the word and prayer. So in a lot of ways, that's what, that's what pastoring is. It's like mm-hmm. one, one of the things, even as a, as a, as a new and young pastor that I've come to realize is, and, and seminary didn't, seminary did a lot of really great things for me, but I've still had to feel through like, okay, now what does it mean to be a pastor? Right. And, um, and the, one of the biggest, most sound conclusions that I've come to is that pastoring is preaching. Mm-hmm. It's preaching in a bunch of different times in a bunch of different ways in a mm-hmm. bunch of different formats, but it's preaching. You are, you want to pray for, uh, 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 the people of God and you want to shepherd them with the word of God, right? The, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So it's just constantly helping people, people see, um, the goodness of God or the mercy of God or the gentleness of God or whatever via his word. And that, yes. that's what shepherds. Them. So, um, just the whole, the whole, my whole time in Emmanuel thus far has been me feeling through like, okay, how do I best do this as the person that's not the primary preacher? Sure. You know? Yep. Um, so as soon as it feels like I'm starting to get a handle on those things, boom. Right. <laughs> Tor- tornado. <laughs> yeah, now, do, now go ahead and do this remote. Right. Yeah, tornado first. Tornado hits Nashville. Yep. Um, and, you know, my mom was born and raised here, so... Uh, all of my aunts and uncles on her side, cousins and whatnot, live here. So there's that upheaval that happens. And then um, I think it was the very next week that the coronavirus stuff mm-hmm. kind of started. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then, um, and then the week after that, it it really like it started shutting things down. So how, the question is, how did it? How has it affected my job? It's affected everything. Like we're trying to figure out how to um, appropriately digitalize. Right. That which is normally supposed to happen in, in person and right. which should should primarily happen in person. So it feels like um, a lot of stopgap work, meaning like the people who are the people asking the questions, who are the people on the fringes? You know, Proverbs 27, 23, I believe, know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herds. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the primary roles of a shepherd, pastor, elder, right? Knowing the people paying attention to them, right? Being able to care for them. Well, that's really hard when we're all in isolation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just trying to be creative with like, yep. um, you, you know, who, who are we? Who are the most vulnerable among us? Who really need to be brought in? Mm-hmm. Um, are there marriages that are in trouble that we need to pay particular attention to here? Or, um, so it's like, it's like handling a lot of those things. And obviously, mm-hmm. um, how do we stay connected? Um, digital small groups. Um, we've started a prayer meeting on Thursdays. How does that work? I saw the announcement for that and didn't join yesterday. Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit of an extremist. So what I wanted to do is basically block out my whole Thursday for, for prayer. Okay. And I wanted it to be, and it's, it might evolve into this at some point, but I was willing to basically say every couple of hours, jump on a Zoom call and I'll be there and we'll, we'll just pray together yes. and keep, and just, that's a way that we stay connected. Like video. 
Yeah, like yeah. Video so and audio on the Zoom. I had never heard of Zoom before until the coronavirus. No way. Like, I never. Really? I never what were even, you using Google Hangouts? I just would meet with <laughs> people on person. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe I'm archaic in that, but well, I just I think that's the way to do it. Absolutely in person. And, and I just remember the day when it was all about Skype, man. It was all Skype, yeah. and then Google Hangouts came. Yes. And it was all Google Hangouts, but Zoom's been the thing for I feel like a couple years now. See, I said something about Skype before the coronavirus thing. I said something to Pastor Scott about Skype a couple of months ago. And he was like, how, you know, yeah. that's so old <laughs> and dated. That? And I'm like, well, I don't even know what else. <laughs> you know, What's just, funny about that is actually I shouldn't even get into this because I don't even know the functionality good enough. Um, I was about to say what's funny about that is the functionality is pretty similar, but I, I could be wrong. It's just that's the way things work with this tech stuff. Something's hot for a while, then it's not. Something comes along, it's just a little bit better, but it's hot. Everyone uses it, mm-hmm. you know? Well, yeah, it feels like Skype to me, except I guess I've never really Skyped with multiple people at once or right. whatever. But, um, yeah, so Zoom. Um, we're we're so doing Zoom, Zoom prayer meetings. Yeah, at 12 and at 8 p.m. on on Thursdays, and that's been cool. Can like, anyone join, or just if you're an Emmanuel member? I, I believe if you, you know, the link's floating around on Facebook. So I think so if, if you someone's click it, on this can, podcast and wants to join, absolutely, they could go to EmmanuelNashville.com mm-hmm. and probably find their way from there. Yeah. And yeah. then, or at, the Emmanuel uh, Facebook group. And just yeah. Okay. That would be link. good. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then at 12 noon and 8 p.m. Central, just hit the link, join in, and just pray via video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we've had to preface cause we're just, we're just getting going with it and we've had to preface like, Hey, we know this is not the same as, as if we were face to face, person to person, but let's just embrace it. Let's mm-hmm. just embrace the, a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of awkwardness mm-hmm. and let's just lean in. This is where God has us all, all yeah, of us. He has right. all of us here right now. He so. does. But also to that point, I think I heard you preach one time that Christians eat awkward for breakfast. That's right. That's it's like right. you can't be a Christian without being awkward. Right. That I, actually, I've remember. you know what? I thought a fair bit of that since then. And that was actually super helpful for me because I don't know. I think a lot of times, I, well, here's the thing, man. I wanted to be a Christian that's not weird like a Christian, you know, mm-hmm. or like that's not like a church boy or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I do feel like I'm seeing that patterned or or um, like modeled out for me, where you can be a devout Christian and not be weird in the in the weird senses. And I guess what I mean by the weird senses is like being weird in areas that don't matter. It's like come on, uh, but praying, continuing to pray together, even if it's online, like it's a little weird. Yeah, but go for it. Like. It's being Christian is going to be a little weird at times. I think that's one of the best things that I got out of my time in campus ministry um, is it, it's inescapable. If mm-hmm. we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we're going to have to be a little, it, it's, it's a series. I had a, uh, a former mentor basically say Christianity is a series of awkward conversations. Right. Know? Yeah. And is that mostly what you mean when you say like, you're going to have to be awkward to be a Christian? Is that mostly what you mean is like the conversations or like, do you have other stuff in mind too? No, just uncomfortable conversations. Right. I think yeah. we should fight to be as normal as possible, whatever, right. whatever normal is. Yep. Um, we should fight to take away as many roadblocks to people hearing us out as we yes, possibly can. totally agree. So we don't want to be awkward for awkward sake. Yes. Like I remember my freshman year the, uh, in college, I was not a Christian, and there was this one really nice RA, but he always wore like these really 
strange kind of Jesus t-shirts, like right. where it looked like a Reese's peanut butter cup, but it said Jesus, you know, the satisfy, <laughs> or whatever it was. Jesus satisfies. And I just well, never wanted to. I one never, bite's not enough. Exactly. <laughs> so I just never wanted to hang out with him. Right. You know? I always respected him from afar because I could tell he was different. Yeah. But there was also these roadblocks. So I was just like, I, he's just not. A, what, what changed my life was there was a guy that was a really normal dude, loved sports, whatever, normal to me, whatever that is. And, um, and as our friendship started to grow, the authentic nature of his Christian faith exposed my, whatever, my cultural Christianity mm-hmm. exposed mm-hmm. the fraudulence of what I thought my faith was. And, um, and, and he was, he was still a very awkward dude. Like he would have these really weird conversations with me, but he, at the same time, he was this normal guy that likes sports and loved, right. you know, football. Yes. And love whatever. That's what I'm trying to model, dude, is like being as normal as possible in every sense, but being willing to be different with what I want to talk about. Right. And then I think... When it's appropriate. Exactly. And, and even, not even being weird with that all the time. And even sometimes when it's not appropriate, though, like you have to, you have to, um, what is it? Sometimes you just got to shoot your shot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you're right. And because I've seen the other side of it as well, like in the, in the campus ministry world where you just try to be friends with a guy and you try to be cool with him, and you, you know, and you've built this friendship and you're playing basketball together. And then it's a year later and you haven't, you haven't told him what you're all right. about, who you yes. really are. And, yeah. And that's make, that makes it all the more awkward. So yes. what, what I mean by awkward is, you know, Jesus says that, you know, in this life, we're going to be, we're, we're going to stand out. We're, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to, awkwardness is, is bound to happen. Yes. Right? Yeah. So as a Christian, if we know that's true, we just lean into it yes. and say, yeah, I try to as quickly, when I meet people, I try to as quickly as possible do a couple of things. One, let them know I'm a relatively normal person. And two, also let them know I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor or I was, I'm a campus minister or mm. whatever. Jesus has changed my life. As quickly as, I'd like to get that on the table as quickly as possible. Oh, okay. So that if you want to bounce just because I'm a Christian now, you, you've got a very early exit you've to You've got our a kind of a license to do it. Now, are you saying, let's say you've got a one hour, well, I mean, you can't pattern this stuff, I'm sure. But let's just say if you've got a short flight and you're on an airplane, that may or may not come up. If you meet someone, it may or may not come up. But if you're like, if you're going to meet a neighbor, or is this what you're talking about? You're talking about like most people you meet, you're going to kind of... If I'm there this. with any regularity, like if, okay. it, if it's the coffee shop that I go to on a daily basis or oh, okay. my neighbors, like I've got neighbors right now, all of them know I'm a pastor. Um, and I haven't exactly shared the gospel fully with any of them yet, but they all know I've invited them to church. I've invited them to our small group and within the first, you know, however, within the first day of them knowing me, they knew that I'm a relatively normal guy that likes these certain few things that they're more than willing to join me in, or I'd love love to join them with or, or, and I'm a Christian and Jesus has really affected my life in some way. Okay. Yeah. So, and and it could be as simple as it could be as simple as, um, what 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 uh what college did you go to? What'd you do in school? I played football, whatever. But I I stopped. I quit playing football my sophomore year when uh, I became a Christian. It just totally transformed my life. 
Oh, and that's where okay. I'll stop right there. And, oh, okay. and we don't have to, if they don't want to hear more about that, then I just don't say anything else about it. Mm. Um, but they know from the very beginning that I'm just not, you know, I'm not, I, we're going to go there at some point. Yeah. Do you, well, I, I know, um, I've heard Matt Chandler say that a, a few times. Like that's what happened with him. Like he was in a locker room and a football player uh, walked up to him and was like, basically like, I'm here to play football with you, and at some point we're gonna have to talk about Jesus. Doesn't need to be now. I'm just, that. I'm just, I'm just saying. At some that. point we're gonna have to talk about Jesus. I love that. I love that too. Um, and I was gonna ask you on the. Oh yeah, that's. Uh, I was gonna ask you. Do you not have any, any hesitation with using using the term Christian? Like, that's a fine term, and it seems to communicate what you're after, and you use it quite a bit. Yeah, I think. I would love to believe that my life is going to prove exactly what I believe. Mm-hmm. So call me a Christian, call me a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Christ, whatever. Right. I have seen it happen over and over again that my life is going to bleed through and is going to actually tell you as much as my words do. And that's, that's yeah. my goal. Yeah. So yeah. I, have, I have no qualms with, yeah. with that. Yeah. And while we're on it, what are, your, what are your, I know you've got some thoughts around sharing the gospel because you were at Campus Outreach Ministries mm-hmm. uh, for some time and, um, and, you, and you have the heart of an evangelist. Yeah, I mean. So what, um, for someone like me who does not gravitate towards sharing the gospel, what are some of your, um, what are some of your thoughts around that? Um, when to do it, how to do it, you know? Well, that's what, I guess that's what I've been saying this whole time is when I say that there, that we got to lean into awkward, it's just like, um, if you, if you have embraced awkward, it's not really awkward anymore. Sure. Right. So, yeah. so if you m- m- having led evangelism trainings and having, um, seen people literally go from not a Christian to now they're a baby Christian and are scared to pray in front of and uh, out loud in front of people to them being one of the, by the time they graduated, one of the, a, a better evangelist than me, one of the best evangelists on campus, you, you know? I, so I've seen these kind of stages of how people progress. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I just think what, what the corner that people turn um, that become good evangelists is they turn the corner of, uh, it's only awkward if you allow it to be awkward. And if you just em- embrace it for what it is, then it's not really awkward anymore. Sure. It's like, okay, yep. some people are going to reject me and they're going to think, they're going to look at me like I have three heads uh, b- because I say something about Jesus. But there's going to be some people that don't and that yes. want to hear me out. Yes. And yep. those are the people that we're after. You know, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the Holy Spirit that has to do the work anyway. So <clears throat> Yeah. Um, now, yeah. now uh, let me ask you this. I know you're Reformed theologically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a sense that takes the pressure off a little bit because like, um, God's elect are going to be saved. Yeah. So is that, do you use that as sort of like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to do my part in telling people about Jesus and God's going to have to save them. Like, is that kind of yeah. like that may kind of take, does that take the pressure off a little bit and you're going to do your part and leave the rest to That's to all Christ? you can do. Yeah. That's all you can do. Yeah. So now it's not so much about, oh man, that person didn't get saved because I didn't say it quite like this and I didn't say this and shoot, shoot I should have said that and man, I missed an opportunity and like they might burn in hell forever because of that. Well, well that's not that's not even how salvation works. Exactly. I, you know, I've had a few guys through the years that I've discipled that were just uh, started off terrified to share the gospel because they were scared they were going to mess it up. What if I mess, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And my favorite example of a really bad, effective sermon is Jonah. Mm. He goes into he goes into Nineveh. He, yeah. He's, he's, he's basically a racist that doesn't want to see these people change yeah. because of, you know, the historical things that surrounded it. Uh, God basically has to arm wrestle him into doing it. He gets spit up on shore because even the, even the, the fish couldn't stomach uh, Jonah. Yeah. He gets spit up on shore and uh, he finally goes in. God says, you know, pre- you know preach the gospel to him. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh. <laughs> that's, that's the sermon. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and God uses it. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's more about our willingness even than the content of what we say. Yeah. Of course, the content of the gospel is important and we, mm-hmm. should, we should be ready, you know, to preach the gospel in season and out of season, right? Mm-hmm. Like just we, we should practice those things. We should know what we believe and, and be able to, in a compact way, Explain it, but mm-hmm. I, man, I think I think the Lord is. In my experience, it's more about people's willingness to go, yeah. Even then, yeah. E- even more than their brilliance or their theological acumen. Sure, you know? yeah, totally agree. And we've you've talked to me about what you used with uh, campus outreach and what you learned there. It has something to do with the bridge. I don't remember the term now, but can you talk us through that? The bridge diagram? Yeah, I think it was that. Yeah, yeah. I use yeah. that. I use that yeah. all the time. That's been around since I think the 70s, right? Like it's it's not it's no new trick. And it's a it's a little cartoon uh stick figure bridge that I draw out based on Romans 623. But if it's if if but the 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 bottom line is if if the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, then what we need to be, you know, if we are if we are sharing God's word with people that he's going to do the effective work, right? He's mm-hmm. going to use the sword of the spirit to pierce hearts and to change hearts. So Romans six twenty three: for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's just like a little, yeah, it's just a little bridge illustration that we draw out. And it's like, yep. Hey, there's a, there's a divide between you and God. Yep. Your, your sin has called, has, has, has caused a separation between you and the only one that can satisfy your soul. Yeah. You have been hungry and thirsty for satisfaction your entire life. Yeah. And the only way to get it is to somehow bridge this chasm between you and God. Yeah. How do you do it? Yeah. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So yep. Jesus is the only one. So, and, and that's, I mean, to this day, that's how I share the gospel with people. Yeah. So. And, and we'll get into some, some like, well, no, I don't even want to say more fine theological points here, but I, speaking of that divide, I saw a church sign, you know, knock on, you know, knock on what it was a church sign that said, um, God is madly in love with you. And I think it said something else. And I was like, man, you know, that sign's out there for everyone saying God is madly in love with you. And, um, you know, I'm just not sure I'd be so confident that's the case. Mm-hmm. It's a very man-centered um worldview, theology, whatever you want to call it, yeah. probably theology, because it ultimately has to do with like your thoughts about you and God and that relationship. But man, I think that's, uh, I'm not sure that it's accurate for an unbeliever. God is madly in love with you because was God madly in love with the Philistines? Right. Was God madly in love um, with Pharaoh? Well, uh, I think that's... And, and furthermore, um, and so if, if, if yes, 
um, at one level, okay, maybe that church sign is right. If no, then you have to ask the question, if you're not right with God, if that divide still exists, what's the difference between you and Pharaoh, ultimately? Yeah. What's the difference between you and the Philistines, ultimately? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, okay, but if God doesn't change, now we got a problem here, because maybe God's not madly in love with you. So I feel like that divide that you talked about, that's not, that's not popular anymore. Yeah. Popular is... God loves everyone, you know, and now we do know, here, here please don't misunderstand what I'm no, saying. Yeah. Like, we do know that anyone who calls out to Christ, anyone who comes to God, he receives uh, 100%. Really he always has and he always will. That's the most important thing. So if someone's hearing this and they don't consider themselves a Christian or they're straight up, they know they're not a Christian or whatever, but they feel a draw to God and they feel like, man, that divide, like, man, if I'm not, if God doesn't love me, I do want him to love me. Perfect. Like, like, we can help with that. You know what I mean? Like, put your faith in, and trust in, in Christ. And so he doesn't refuse anyone. But for those that haven't become right with him, there is a divide that exists. And that divide is just not, it's not uh, popular anymore. You know, I think there's a verse of scripture that makes sense of that whole situation. It's Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It's not that God has walked away from us. It's that we have walked away from him. And in our, in our unredeemed state, we are perpetually walking away from him. We're perpetually. Yes. And that's what repentance is, right? Repentance yes. is to do you know, that about face that now, that now says, I, my whole life I've been looking for purpose, security, and fulfillment in yes. myself or in my girlfriend or in whatever the thing is, right? Yep. My popularity or my career, or yep. whatever. Repentance is to say, every time, every decision that I've made to this point has led me to hear utter dissatisfaction. Yes. I, I sense this chasm of, uh, of, of uh, I've got all the money in the world or I've got, you know, I've got yeah. the things that I thought was going to satisfy me and I'm not satisfied. What is this? Yes. It's because the way that you thought was right has led you to this path of utter dissatisfaction. And if you continue down it, you're only going to get further and further away from God and therefore yes. further and further away from where life is. Yeah. So where repentance is, is turning to that. So the turning, turning away from your sin and turning yes. towards God. So yeah, that's, 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 uh, you know, does God love all of his creatures? I do think he does. Um, and I also think that we have, we have been so broken by our sin that unless God intervenes, we're going to continue to choose other things, and therefore that chasm continues to get wider. Yes, you know? I totally agree. And we do know that God so loved the world. Now, that, that word world means cosmos, right. which does mean what you said, right. creatures. So mm-hmm. we do know at one level, like God does know everything. He God does love everything he created, like at a mm-hmm. universe, like cosmic mm-hmm. level. Yeah. But that book, um, The Sovereignty of God, I just read it. Now I can't think of who the author is. Uh, can you grab it right there? It's um, it's the second one. Just yeah, you're good. No, just keep it on. Just God got you. Sovereignty of God. Second one in. Right, uh, second bookshelf from the top, from the right. By the way, have you read much C.S. Lewis? Oh yeah. I just read my first C.S. Lewis. So embarrassing. Really? I just read my first C.S. Lewis book at the beach. What did you um, read? But it's uh, the Mere Christianity. But that oh, book right great. there has like five of his books in it. Oh okay. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna read some more. But anyhow, the next one you should read is The Great Divorce. Really? Okay. Very underrated. I, lo- I mean, I love that book. Really? The Great Divorce? Because I was thinking of going with the uh, the one, uh, what's it called, where, the, where he kind of like taught, like it's like a story that involves the devil. Hmm. No, it's a super common oh, oh, one. What's oh, it called? Oh, oh, um, it's like one of his most common books. The Wormwood. Um, 
I can't think of what it's. It's it's uh, screw tape letters. Yes, yes, absolutely. Screw tape letters. That's 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 great too. Yeah. Anyhow, this book right here, the sovereignty of God. um, A W Pink. Yeah, A W Pink kind of talks about that uh, that divide in God's love. So that was that was helpful for me. So it's kind of fresh in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, what else uh, did we did we kind of cover the practical things that um, have changed for pastors. Oh, another thing I know that um, that we're doing at church is there's a live kids class at 9 a.m. Central mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Sunday mornings. Yeah, which that's really that, cool. That is cool. I, th- I think it was on uh, Instagram Live and maybe Facebook Live. I'm not even sure, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I, I know it was there's at least There's so many those cool two. things. That's the other thing, that everything is now so decentralized, at least yeah, for me. But see, yeah, yeah, but there's it so is. many good things but happening. But the truth is, man, it's always been, like, it's always been pretty decentralized. I feel like, here's the thing, man, I feel like missions are always more decentralized than you might think, or maybe than you would even, you know, hope for. Like, it just, they they just are like mm-hmm. it, it has to be, but I do. That is one thing I appreciate about Emmanuel is it is like that's by intent. Yeah, the, they're deliberate about yeah. that, and I think it's now we can see it even more with the coronavirus going on. Yeah, and that's the way to. That's the way. Actually, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah, and and we've got a we've got a group of pastors and staff that really get after it and mm-hmm. that are really capable people. So yeah. yeah, so people are just able to, you know, our 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 youth leader Vince. Just started city groups via Zoom. So okay. I saw a picture of a bunch of uh, the people that are that are in youth group zooming with one another and with events, like having yes. their having their normal city group just digitally. And I'm like, yeah, Man, that's that's amazing. That's I didn't so even know that great. was happening. Yeah. Now, when did you come to Emmanuel? Because this just with your role, Emmanuel, this is your first. Like you were an assistant pastor before that, right? But uh, I was a pastor. I was a pastoral intern. Intern. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was working for a campus outreach as a campus director at a historically black college in Augusta, and okay. And I was also a pastoral intern. Yeah. At, at okay. Church. So you commenced your pastoral career, if you call it that, at Emmanuel, mm-hmm. just like oh, last be a, year. It'll be a year in three days. <laughs> Oh, wow. So it's literally one year ago. Really? Dude, mm-hmm. that went fast. Yeah. How's that going? Like, what's it like to be a, a new pastor? It's, uh, it's interesting. It's a, it's a learning experience. You know, I'm, I'm trying to have the, I'm trying to have the 30, 40 year view of, um, I'm, I'm normally jump in and ask questions later, mm-hmm. like that kind of person. I've tried to, I've tried, I feel like the Lord has led me into think about this as a long as a long haul forward so mainly i've been just trying to uh one do my job but also try to absorb and learn as much as i can from the people around us Mm -hmm. there's so many wise people that that the lord has placed me around as well that made me go man i've got such an opportunity just to just to soak up you know wisdom knowledge yeah yeah, best practices and all those yep. kind of things. So, yeah, uh, uh, it's been it's been the the I think the best way that I could say it is it's been a really fun learning experience thus mm-hmm. far. And um and there's a lot of wisdom in in the Lord bringing us here at this time mm. because I think I would have if I had it my way I would have chosen it differently. I would have mm. I, I would have thought this whole thing would have started and been a little different than it is. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, we moved here from Augusta, and before TJ ever reached out to to me, we were planning on being in Augusta for yeah, that's right, five or seven years. We had yeah. we, we bought a house four months before 
before TJ contacted No way. Was it really that close? It was that close. I don't recall that. Okay. It was that close. Wow. So, so then TJ reaches out to us, uh, reaches out to me via email and I had never heard of him before. I'd never heard of Emmanuel before. And, um, and everything I knew about a Nash about Nashville was growing up here, coming up during Thanksgiving or Christmas with my mom to see that side of the family. So it wasn't like on my destinations of this is the place that I want to be, you know, but through a bunch of crazy uh, circumstances, the Lord made it real clear, like, this is it. And I'm like, okay. So I just, you know, obediently just kind of, kind of followed and jumped in. I mean, in the middle of a pastoral succession, in the middle, you know, like just, just a lot of craziness. (laughs) There was a lot going on. We, I I mean, I was in the, I was in the PCA and I had just gotten licensed in the PCA, which is like the big, that's like the big step. Once you get licensed, generally the ordination uh, exam for the PCA is just a little, I won't say easier, but it's just kind of like if you've passed the licensure, you're going to pass ordination. Mm -hmm. So I've done all the studying, done all the quizzing, done all the memorizing, all these different things, got licensed. And then two weeks after I'd gotten licensed, that's when TJ reached out to me. Hmm. And uh, so it was just like a really weird timing. Yeah. And um, not only so another really strange thing, not only uh, those things, but in in Augusta, we'd, we'd bought a house on this block. That we had convinced um, our friends to basically flood this block so that we could reach for the sake of reaching, you know, uh, downtown Augusta. Like move, like like moving in with you guys, or like renting or buying homes close to you guys. Um, very close. Like from my front porch, you could see a guy that I had led to Christ when I was in college at Valdosta, and um, across the street from him, there was a guy that I had discipled at Georgia Southern when I was working for Georgia Southern in uh, uh, campus outreach. And right behind us was what they called the Vision Pathways House, which was a basically a, not a flop house, whatever you want to call it, for college students that mm. had just graduated from college that are learning how to plug into the to the local church and mm. basically wanting discipleship. And then right next to them was another guy that I uh, had some influence with at, at Georgia Southern. So there was like quite literally one, two, three, four, five five families that we lived on almost the same, the same block. And that was, when you say that, that, that one house where you had interns, was that owned by the church? It was owned by the church. So you had a house in downtown Augusta owned by the church Mm -hmm. and people that were coming out of college Mm -hmm. and maybe wanted to get into ministry or like who would get to live there? Cause that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. It's actually one of the first things that I'd uh, kind of floated out there, but I didn't realize the real estate prices here. So yeah, but um, but God's got lots of money, bro. That's true. It's a little bit different though in Augusta. I'm sure like, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. So the idea behind that was this is this way predated me, but um, when I was coming out of school, there were these studies that were coming out, um, basically from the campus ministry side that basically said all these people that you're loving on while they're in college, leading to Christ, disciple, and teaching them how to study their Bible. They're having a really hard time to plug into the local church once they graduate. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a real disconnect between the people, the the great things that are going on on the campus, and now life in the church and what's happening mm-hmm. there. So, a bunch of different people in a bunch of different regions started to say, "What's going to be our answer to this? We've got to figure out how to plug people directly out of college and into the church." Mm-hmm. And this happened to be. Um, uh, Augusta, the, the Augusta region's answer, or one of them is, okay, 
um, the church happens to have these houses that have been missionary houses. Um, so they took one of the houses that was, you know, two or three units and, and they basically recruited a bunch of students that were graduating. And there was a guy that was over, basically over the ministry house. And he was discipling all of them as they Mm -hmm. were getting into their first jobs post, uh, Post, oh, that's great, man. Yeah, post-college. So what they're doing is they're learning for the first time how to do their own independent finances, how to, and, and at the same time, how to plug into the church, um, um, how to navigate either a courtship or dating. Like, and they've been doing that, obviously, in college as well. But now, like, okay, we're taking steps towards marriage and what, what's happening. Like, those, those kind of, yeah, those kind great, of man. different. It's like the next step after, like, okay, we're out of college ministry and we're trying to apply some of the principles that we've learned. Right. Uh, we're trying to figure out how do those things translate into the real world, the job yep. market, personal relationships, life in the church. Like, yep. you know, because the church. Campus ministry is is four years if you're lucky. If you're mm-hmm. lucky, you meet a guy or a girl their freshman year. You lead them to Christ, and you're able to disciple them for you know those four years. Yeah, most of the time it's probably two and a half, probably mm-hmm. two and a half years, mm-hmm. and then they're out trying to trying to figure it out on their yeah. own, trying to figure things out. So, yep. um, yeah, it's you know the church. The beautiful thing about the church and what attracted me to pastoral ministry was the cradle to the grave aspect. Mm-hmm. Like, man, these are people that now. We get to we get to mold and uh, see grow and help them sh- shepherd them through all the waves of and stages of of yes. life. So, yes, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that. Is that um, is that still like is that is that what you love most about pastoral ministry? Is this cradle the grave idea? Like w- walking with people, discipling people, or is it like the actual preaching? Like what parts of like pastoral ministry now, you've been doing it for almost a year. Like, what are some of your favorite parts? It seems to me like <laughs> what, what what I feel like I'm learning is that they're not all that. They're all. It's all. It's all intermingled. Yeah, I can right? see that. Like, yeah. What I didn't realize was when I was in campus ministry, I was doing pastoral ministry. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. I was helping people think through. Do you really think that's the girl for you? Well, let's look at the word and see. Now, does that jive with what God mm-hmm. says is is glorifying him? You know, mm-hmm. those, those kind of things. So I don't know that they're, yeah, I, I think the discipleship aspect of it is what gets me out of bed in, mm-hmm. the, you know, in the morning, like helping, helping people takes, take another step for Jesus. And mm-hmm. that's what it's always is. If you're, if you're a non, and, and in that respect, evangelism and discipleship really aren't that different because mm-hmm. in evangelism, what you're saying is you've never taken a step towards Jesus before. Let me help you take a step towards Jesus. Come to this Bible study or hear me out for five minutes. Tell it, let me tell you my story for, for five minutes about how God changed me. Mm-hmm. And that's just, if you'll give me, just, just take a step with me. Yeah. Just take a yep. step, just take a step. And in, in, and that's why, and that's how evangelism with your neighbors and discipleship with your neighbors or your church members or whatever can be so, in some ways can be so easy because you're really not trying to get it all done in one day or one conversation. Right. You're just saying, every time we talk, let's just take another step. Let's yes. be a little bit more neighborly. Yeah. Let's be a little bit more loving. Let's, let me be a little bit more clear about uh, who, who Christ is to me. Yes. And let me call you into that. Have you ever responded to Jesus? You know, whatever. So discipleship and evangelism really aren't that, aren't that different in that respect, because in discipleship, what you're saying is, okay, you have, you have planted your flag for, for Jesus. Now 
the guy that uh, the guy that led me to Christ, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was about to break up with my girlfriend in college, and um, and I was telling him like I was just struggling with the whole thing of it, and he was like, you know, now that you're a Christian, the rest of your life is sanctification, and he's going to be asking you to do things uh, every, almost every day. Like that's yes. just what it is. And I didn't understand that really, but the longer I've walked with Christ, the more I realize that's what, in some ways, that's what sanctification is. It's it is um, today. Am I going to follow Christ or not? Yes. Today, am I going to take another? For me, right now, as a pastor, today, am I going to wake up and take a step towards Jesus or away from Him? You yes, know? I totally agree. And like dying and dying, dying to self. We were just talking about this two days ago with uh, with uh, Patrick Miller. You can Google that if someone wants to hear more about it because we, we talk quite a lot about it, actually just this idea that that's a very biblical principle is you must die to be reborn mm-hmm. and and yeah everyone thinks of like being born again like the salvation experience of well, what certainly includes that but dude that's not like that's just the beginning mm-hmm. like just dying to mm-hmm. be reborn is just mm-hmm. a biblical principle um yeah. you talked about uh you just mentioned something that brought this to mind um this idea of kind of being all like one and the same and uh, it made me think of uh, Shia Lin and his music. So, I've been listening to that music, and Lincoln knows I've been listening to Shia Lin nonstop the last week and a half, bro. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't find this guy before. Seriously, I think what I would chalk so it up. So you just recently got put on the yes, Shia Lin. Yes, yes, um, and well, I think it's mostly because, well, to be honest, and I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I don't listen to a lot of Christian music to begin gotcha. with. So I gotcha. think that's probably yeah. it. And then beyond that, um, I don't listen to a lot of hip hop or you know rap that type of thing. Um, and so I've heard I've heard some like I've heard some of Triple E stuff and Lecrae stuff and things. But um, man, it was only in the last two weeks that I stumbled upon Shylin. I'm not even sure what got me onto it, but dude, I cannot turn that stuff off. It is. It's really good music. Mm-hmm. It's really great hip hop, mm-hmm. and the lyrics are like, dude, they are straight down. Like it's it's just it's just fastballs. Like I mean these these lyrics are well, super solid, bro. This stuff is great. Have you listened to much of his stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big Shylin fan. Um, if you haven't heard his, he has a my favorite album of his actually is an album called Stories, and um, it it's what really can. I started paying way more attention to him and his uh, lyricism and just the feel. It's basically discipleship. Mm. He has, he has a song on the atonement where he basically raps from the high priest's point of view on the day of atonement. So mm. the high, so think, you know, Leviticus and the Levitical system, man, I try, I remember being in college trying to get through Leviticus and I just couldn't, I, I just could really? not get through it. <laughs> And then I started listening to his music, and he made so much sense of what the scene would have been like, and yeah. what what the what the priest must have felt, and like all these different things. And I was like, "Oh, okay, yes." So he just took he just took the discipleship part of it to another level. So yeah, I you, love. You think I love, the album is called Stories? Because I don't I don't think I have that album. The album's downloaded. called Stories. Yeah, I don't even see it on mm-hmm. here. I thought I downloaded all of his albums. Now he has an album called The Atonement. Or atonement? No, that's not. That's it. not that. Mm-mm. It's called. So stories. it is an album called yeah, Stories. Okay, I'll stories. check that out, yeah. dude. I've been loving his stuff, man. It's, great. it's so it's so great. great. It's great. The Attributes of God. That that's also a really great album. Yeah. Um, and and he literally just you know, excuse me, 
I need to get him on. I think here, it's like bro. seventeen. I know yeah. he's. I know he's not in Nashville. I think he lives in Philly somewhere. But I mean, I think there are people. Dude, if he comes through Nashville, bro, help well, me out. I'm, here. I'm pretty sure to... Pastor Ray has a really has a, has I'm some, sure he knows, some yeah. kind of relationship with yeah. him, and he yeah. did. He was on the Romans eight CD, so I'm sure there's people that yes. have his yeah. stuff. So yeah, I don't know if you're out there, Shylin. Yeah, come on, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what was I gonna say? Uh, Shylin's great. What what got us on that? Well, we were talking. We were we were picking up in uh, Augusta, and you were talking about kind of what got you into pastoral ministry. I did want to ask you because you mentioned this that it was clear that um, when you mentioned something about being clear, I, I think you were referencing being clear to come to Emmanuel to be a pastor here. Yeah. Were you you were clear though before that that you wanted to be a pastor? Well, and, that's that's interesting as well. So that's because I was kind of curious story. about that. What was clear to me, so I became a Christian my sophomore year of college through the ministry that I worked for, or you know, the the ministry that I would eventually work for, Campus Outreach. And what became really clear to me, well, here's here's what happened. I became a Christian, and then maybe nine months later, a younger cousin of mine came down to uh, to school. And I shared the gospel with him and he became a Christian. And it was a totally transforming, it was as transforming for me as it was for him. Because what I realized was, you know, I I played sports in high school and for my first uh, bit of time in in college, I played sports. So I knew what it felt like to, uh, to receive satisfaction for, uh, something that you really enjoyed, mm-hmm. right? Um, I knew what it was to like put in really hard hours, either training, lifting, shooting baskets, whatever, and then getting rewarded for it by a job well done. This was the first time I had felt a satisfaction like that. That was like, mm. oh man, what else would I give my life to other than helping people find their satisfaction in Jesus? Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't know that I was going to be a pastor, but I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people sign their, find their satisfaction in, in Christ. So um, what that meant in the short term was, the, the, it was just saying that, that it was, it's, you know, it's, it's about steps with Jesus, right? So the obvious next step of yes to Jesus was, well, why don't you, after you graduate, go on staff with that ministry and help people in another city mm-hmm. and see how that, how that works and how that translates. So I did that, and man, the Lord did some really incredible things. Um, at the end of my time in Statesboro at Georgia Southern, I was like deeply depressed. I'm talking mm. about, and I didn't, I didn't know that I was depressed at the time, but I, I was just calling it burnout or whatever I was calling it. But I just was, there was, there was a bunch of ministry, ministry success, like people coming to know the Lord and the ministry swelling and a bunch of people like the numbers looked great to, to the people that were looking and whatever. I was deeply broken and I didn't under, I didn't understand it. So I thought maybe I'm just not cut out for, for this. So my, my now, bright idea was real quick. What um, did, what point in time are we at here and how soon after becoming a believer? I missed that part. Okay. So this was um, after I graduated from college. So this was, Three four years after I'd become a okay, Christian, gotcha. I was a. Uh, this is my first job out of college. Was with Campus Outreach. Okay, so I'm twenty three or something like that. Yep. I don't. I don't yep. exactly remember. Um, but uh, but by the time I was leaving, I so I was in Statesboro for four years. So I'm newly married. Um, I'm about twenty seven. 
And uh, there's a bunch of different factors that led to me just kind of imploding. Um, And I was limping out of Statesboro. I was actually about to leave ministry altogether. And um, I I thought I still wanted to make Jesus known. I knew that that was my, my big aim. But I thought maybe I thought maybe ministry just wasn't for me. Uh, and there was a bunch of reasons why, but I just thought I can't, I can't keep doing, I can't keep doing this because the more success, quote unquote success that I get, the more, um, overrun I I felt the way, the way I describe it is I felt like I was a truck that was stuck in the mud and I was, I kept on, the more I pressed the gas, the more the tires spun and the mud mm. got slung everywhere. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. But on the outside, everybody else said, man, he's killing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it looks like it looks like things are going really, really great. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't get out of that situation mm-hmm. fast enough. You know? What what prompted that, do you think? This what, depression. Oh, there were a lot of things. <laughs> I've I've, you know, that's a big part of my story, honestly. I've mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. There was um um I don't know. Do, do we want to? Do we want to go? I think we might just want to go into it. Oh, for a bit. Yeah, you're good. Um, well, there's a bunch of different things. So one of the reasons I wanted to go to Georgia Southern um, was because, at least when I when I graduated from college, the statistics might have changed by now, but there were more African American students at Georgia Southern than any other uh, university in Georgia, including Georgia Tech, Georgia, uh, UGA, Kennesaw State, like some of the bigger universities, there's more African-American students there than anywhere else. By quantity or ratio? By quantity. By quantity. quantity. So I think... Like a small... And that's a smaller school than UGA. It's it's smaller than UGA. It's about 21,000 students undergrad. That's what it it was. I don't know what it is now. At the time, it was 21,000 undergrad, and there was like 6,500 African-American students. So it was a it was a good chunk of the population, and I'm like, there, the Lord had done some really unique things in my life at at Valdosta, where I was realizing a part of the way that the Lord had wired me was to kind of be this bridge between uh, white and black. Mm. Like I had, um, I, I'd grown up in the suburbs of Atlanta around a lot of white people, um, but I also had family that lived, you know, in you know. Uh, and in a bunch of different places and mm-hmm. mostly black areas and all those mm-hmm. kind of things. So I just, growing up, I just had this, you know, very clearly what uh, W.B. Du Bois talks about, that, that dual consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just very natural to me. And um, I, I never felt like I, I had to uh, be a different person. I just knew how to interact with black and white. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way, right? And the Lord had really used that in some really keen and specific ways at Valdosta State and built this kind of multi-ethnic uh, campus ministry that was just really beautiful, guys and girls. And, and we were this weird, beautiful brotherhood, sisterhood, family that the Lord had built. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do ministry full time, that's the kind of ministry I want to do. Mm. And if I'm going to do that, I can't go to a, a, a school that's, you know, 95% white or whatever. Right. So Georgia Southern was just a, the, uh, okay. it just made sense to, to yeah. go there. So I was there for a while, but Georgia Southern is like in the sticks. It's in a, a Statesboro, Georgia. And it's just there, you know, when school's not in session, there's, it feels like there's more cows than there are people in the, in the, <laughs> in the, in the town and growing, growing up, you know, in the, in the 
outskirts of Atlanta, it just it just was not my it was just not my job. So okay. I think I think one of the things that led to 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 my depression was just being so out of environmentally out of my out of my norm where it's like, okay, I'm out on my own for the first time, like away from school or whatever. And uh, this is this place just is not for me. I mean, to this day, and no offense if anybody out there is listening from Statesboro, but to this day, I just don't even want to. It's just not my thing. Statesboro yeah. is just not my just not my job. So, um, so that was a part of it. The other part was, and 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 I had to learn this that the the more leadership that you take, the lonelier it feels. Mm-hmm. And I just was not ready for that at all. Mm. I was just not ready for it, mm-hmm. and it because. Why I got into ministry is I, you know, I experienced the family of God. I was absorbed by the family of God and I wanted to spread the family of God. I wanted to feel like this uh, camaraderie of brothers and sisters from, um, from different backgrounds that were locking arms together. But what I realized was the more I, the more responsibility I had and the more um, ministerial authority that I had, the more isolated from people I felt. And I didn't have any peers in, in the place. And we were, I was going to this church that, you know, I had some really negative experiences at, mm. at this particular church. Um, so I just totally felt uh, isolated and alone. So that was a big, that was a big part of it. Mm. And then... Are you dating Jaquel at this point? Are you married? Um, Jaquel and I started dating about... I want to say six months or a year after I got to Statesboro. So we're dating long distance. She's still in school at Valdosta. So we're dating about two and a half, three hours away. And, um, and we're dating long distance. We dated for about a year and then we got married. So my, um, my last year in Statesboro was the, was her only year that she lived there. She didn't like it Mm. either. She, she didn't like Statesboro wasn't her first choice either. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, so there was the, the, this combination of Statesboro is really not my place. Um, um, I'm feeling lonelier and lonelier, even though I'm getting, I'm experiencing ministry success. I'm feeling lonelier and lonelier in the work. Then we had, I had a church that just did not support us or care for us. And even more specifically, didn't really care for my wife and I very, very well, honestly. Oh, no. Um, and, and then there was also these tensions between, uh, uh, uh one of my bosses and I, so mm. there was these, these kind of waves of mm. isolation is really what it was. Mm. It's like, okay, I'm in a new place that feels isolated from everything that I've ever known. I'm now in this position that, um, you know, with the people that I'm closest with are the people that I'm ministering to, and they don't quite understand what I'm going through on a day, the decisions I'm having to make, right. the, they don't understand those things. Yeah. And then the church, there, there was some inherited beef between campus outreach and the church that was going on mm. that, that I didn't even have anything to do with, but I just kind of inherited it because I'm now the new campus outreach staff guy. Um, and that's director. why you're there to begin with, with because that's, that's where campus outreach sent you, basically. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the midst of, it's almost like I, I, I step into something mid-conversation, like, mm. and, you're, and I'm like, I don't know how to answer or how to talk. I, I don't know what's going on here, but I feel like I'm getting this weird tug of war between, between whatever entities that be. 
And then, um, and then I had some really negative, some really negative, uh, interactions. Um, yet that's the church that, that our campus ministry is partnered with mm. and is, uh, in, 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 that is subject to. So I have to, so there's just these weird, gotcha. there's all these weird dynamics. And then on top of that, it's my own idolatry and my own, um, my own success idol. And how come every time I, you know, every time something good happens, I don't feel, why don't I, why am I not enjoying this more? Why, yes. you know, shouldn't I feel more satisfaction from yep. a job well done or whatever it is? So, yep. so and I'll, just on that real quick, on that note, yeah. the clearest, most truthful thing I've heard on that note, because I feel, I've felt that dude so many times, mm-hmm. um, is uh, Lady Gaga in that movie A Star Is Born? Never seen it. You, dude, you, sh- you need to. So I love that movie. I've only seen it once though, but um, a lot of great music in there. But in the kind of theme song of the movie, I think the th- the um, song's called Shallow. I think it is. But there's a line in there that says, um, basically, uh, when things are going well. I strive for change. That's not a. That's not a quite a hundred percent accurate quote. But um, how does that go? Things are, basically, when things are going well, you look for you try to change it. Mm-hmm. But when things are going bad, you fear yourself. Mm. And I was like, man, when I heard that, I was like, mm. that's like that's I've I've been there mm. so many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah that. Uh, so I think it was the perfect storm for me. Mm-hmm. My own, like you know, I'm twenty at that point. I'm when we're when we. So at that point, I'm 20, either 26 or 20, I'm 27 because I got married at 26. Also, I'm in my first year of marriage. Mm-hmm. So the, and, and actually compared to the other things that were going on in my life, first year of marriage was like, was like a breeze. Like it was just, we were, we were, we were, we, Jaquel and I felt like we were fighting against so many other things that it just brought, it, mm-hmm. it forced us to, to really bond. Mm-hmm. And our, so I'm really thankful to God for that. Um, but uh, so it was this perfect storm of my own success, idolatry, um, isolation, these different entities. Um, what I felt like was like fighting against the man, like the, the, the powers that be for what for what is right and all the loneliness that comes with all that stuff. And I was like, I was ready to push away from the table and say, you know what, if this is what ministry is, this is not for me. So I actually made plans to 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 become a teacher and a, a football and basketball coach. Oh wow! I was and I was like I was like nine steps down that road, mm-hmm. you know. Like I was, I had made contact with a with a guy in Memphis. Um, there's a there's a program called the Memphis Teacher Residency, which is this mm. really awesome program. Um, and they were doing really great gospel centered work, and I was like, that's that's what I'm doing. So I'd made. Um, I was like way well, well down down the road there, and there was a mentor in Augusta, actually, a pastor. He was the the lead pastor at First Pres at the time, George Robertson. He's actually in Memphis now, mm. ironically. Um, but he um, he convinced me to move to Augusta. He 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 heard some of the things that I was saying, the burnout that I was experiencing, and he basically was like, "I don't think you need to go out of ministry. I think you just need some time to rest and to heal." Right, and I was yeah, like, "That's wise." Um, and he was like, well, if you move to Augusta, you know, um, basically we'll pay for your seminary and I'll disciple you. And mm-hmm. I was like, um, 
I don't know if I'm ever going to go into pastoral ministry or if that's what God's called me to, but I'd be kind of a fool to turn that opportunity down just as a man, as, as someone that wants to walk with Jesus for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and you said this was Ron. What was that guy's uh, George, name? George Robertson. Oh, George Robertson. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was like the offer for you to come down and do that. And even if you decided not to go into pastoral ministry, the offer was still on the table. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, cause I, 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 I so here's, here's what happened. I asked to meet with him when I was in town one time. Oh, okay. And it was so that I could, I, I was, he was the lead pastor that was over basically uh, the sending church of campus outreach. Okay. So I was asking him, Hey, how do I tell uh, the the people that I need to tell that I'm out? That's that's mm. why I was. Mm. That's why I wanted to meet with him. I see. And he countered and said, "Hey, you don't need to go out of you don't need to go out of ministry. You why don't you move to Augusta and uh, and go to seminary and and just kind of learn what pastoral ministry is." Gotcha. And at this point, I was just so sure that I even told him, I said, "You know, I don't want to do that." Like. I'm pretty sure that I'm not cut out for for Mm. ministry. And he said, well, why don't you just pray for, you know, pray Mm -hmm. about it. And I was like, okay, I'll pray. But I mean, unless a miracle happens, I'm not doing this. And then two weeks later, like God, it totally changed my heart. And I was like, all right, we're moving to Augusta. And Jaquel was like, Jaquel was ready to move to Memphis. And like, we were, we were locked and loaded um, towards that. And she was like, what is, you know, okay. If that's, if that, you know, yeah, she just trust, she just trusted me, which I'm really, really thankful for. Um, so it wasn't actually until like I was a year and a half, maybe two years into seminary that I was like, oh, maybe I am supposed to be, you know, in pastoral ministry. Gotcha. And it was actually that, that's, it's just, again, this is about discipleship and about uh, having good mentors in your life. But Pastor George actually ended up being a, uh, a, a professor of mine um, for a few of my classes, and he would make it a point when I would ask a question or when I'd answer a question, he'd make it a point either during breaks or in the moment to say, that's a pastoral reflex. Mm. Hmm. Like you need to see that that's, you know, God has gifted you in that way. That's that you're thinking very pastorally there. So he was just like intentionally like speaking life into, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, I'd never really seen myself in that way. And then I was like, man, okay. And eventually, eventually I was just convinced like, oh yeah, there's nothing else that I really want to do other than. Do you have a family that's in the ministry, like pastoral ministry? No. 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 Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that's, um, you know, that is sometimes like a propellant. Um, Like, you you know, you see like your dad or your grandpa or someone kind of patterning the way there and you didn't Mm -hmm. have that. No. Um, What about, back to the depression, what... What helped you get out of that, and what is maybe some helpful thoughts you would have for other people that are in depression or struggle with it? Well, I was uh, the same guy, Pastor George. I was in a, um, basically taught a, what do you call them, a truncated class. It was like a, a intensive, mm. a counseling intensive that he mm-hmm. taught. And he started telling his own story about anxiety and depression and he started telling his story and i was like oh well that sounds like me mm. you know and he said something else and i was like oh it's like man, that sounds like me mm-hmm. and then he'd say something else and i'm like oh man i've hit that same wall yeah so after a few days of this i finally text him and said hey how do you know if you're depressed 
And he sent me a text back that said, do you think that you're depressed? And I'm guessing he probably already knew this from the conversations that we had had. I just was slow to the, I was slow to the party basically mm-hmm. of my own self-realization. And um, I said, maybe, maybe so. And he's like, so basically he started walking me through like, okay, this is how you, first of all, depression in pastoral ministry is not that uncommon. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to feel a stigma that you're not strong enough or you're not good enough or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he basically hooked me up with uh, a, a doctor that was familiar with, um, um, obviously a medical doctor, but that mm-hmm. also was familiar with pastoral work. He was an elder at one of the church, uh, mm-hmm. at the church. At first so, press, at said, first press. Oh, so he wow. so he saw me and he started asking me these really basic questions about uh, how long have I felt this way? And I was like, well, I mean, I guess like two years or so. Mm. And his jaw about hit the floor. He's like, mm. you felt like this for two years and haven't said anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I thought this is just what I thought right. this was just what ministry and what life felt like. Yeah. You know? And um, so anyway, through and then. Uh, obviously, so, you know, he hooked me up with uh, a few uh, really great counselors. And that was kind of my, it took a really long time. I was on medication for a year and a half mm. or so. And um, what kind of medication? I forgot the name of it. Okay. Like it's a it, prescribed it's, medication? Yeah, it, it's basically like Lexipro. I think it was just a okay. generic version of, of Lexipro. But, okay. um, and I would have, th- before before this was my story, I would have thought like, there's no need to ever take, you know, I, I just would have never guessed that that would be me. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Um, but I'd gotten so used to things feeling dark and gloomy and gray and things just not feeling right. Yeah. Um, but still having to perform under, right. under those pressures. Yep. And being able to muster up the strength to perform for as long as I needed to perform and then just crashing when I get home. You know, right. just totally being wiped out. Um. But then I started, you know, I started going to counseling and uh, I was on Lexapro for a little while. And after a while, like the clouds started to part and I was like, I started to feel like myself again. I I literally hadn't felt like myself in in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, I didn't even know. I didn't even know it was possible to be back here. I just thought that's what life as a Christian. I guess I convinced myself that uh, life was torture and then you die and you need to be with Jesus. That's that's just kind of what I prepared myself for, I guess. Um. Anyway, so that's that's. There was a couple of really great books that uh, that that helped me out a whole lot. You know, um, do you remember any of them? Yeah, uh, emotionally healthy spirituality by Peter Shazaro. That was a really helpful book. Emotionally healthy spirituality. spirituality. Can mm-hmm. you write that down, Lincoln? Um, basically, it's this pastor who had seen a whole lot of ministry success, and one day he had planted a church and it, it blossomed and grown a whole bunch and. One day his wife comes home and says, uh, I love you. I'm not divorcing you, but I'm not going to your church anymore. <laughs> and he's a pastor there? And he's a pastor. He's, he's, no the, way. he's the planting. So that, Did she do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that <laughs> basically, I don't want to butcher the story because it's been a little while since I read it. But basically, that's what led him down this spiral realizing that he was just emotionally a wreck. And um, it kind of, you know, the, mm. the, the book is basically like what the Lord taught him taught him through that emotionally healthy spirituality. Another one was um, a book by uh, Tremper Longman and Dan Allender. It's called um, The Cry of the Soul. Mm. And um, the whole premise is how our horizontal relationship relationships with one another and emotions, those kind of things, um, uh, how it reveals um, 
our biggest questions and mm-hmm. um, how we actually feel about the vertical. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're jealous of someone, it's not even just, it's not even about them. You're, you're, there's actually an anger between you and God mm-hmm. that God wouldn't give you that gift or give you, you know, those abilities or give you whatever. Ah, right. So it's like yeah. how, how the horizontal and the vertical yeah, are related. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that yeah. gave me... You know, before I read, before I read um, The Cry of the Soul, I would, I would think I only had two emotions. I was either angry or happy. I didn't know that I was just sad sometimes, or I was lonely sometimes, or I was confused, or mm-hmm. I was jealous, or I was just hurt, or I was just lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, what? I didn't have a broad range of emotional language. Right. You know, it was yes. just either I'm really angry about this and I know how to handle that. Yep. Or I'm really happy. Yes. <laughs> I didn't did, have, did I didn't you have do any else. like uh, counseling or therapy uh, yeah. with that? Yeah. And yeah. did that help you kind of see range of emotions and kind of help you process that? Yeah. I mean, there are good counselors and there are, you know, not yeah. so good counselors. Yeah. So th- I've been, I've been to a, to a few of them, but yeah. um, yeah. What's the that? name of the book? Is that what you need? Uh, the cry of the soul. The cry of the soul. Yeah. By Dan Allender. Yeah. I think it's Dan Allender and Trimper Longman. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people, man, that, um, that are depressed or struggle with depression and think it's just them, you know, and, yeah. and don't, oh, that was me for sure. Yeah. And don't, uh, and don't realize that it's not just them and, um, and they feel isolated and lonely and, uh, man, I just want them to know like those people, like it's, like you're not alone, right. you know. It's not just you. And and furthermore, what I appreciate, what like so you were on medication for this. I've never been on medication for that, but I'm sure there's been times where I probably should have been. Mm. Um, and and that's another thing I think that's that's unfortunate is is a lot of people. Well, some well, I think this is this is getting better, but there's still a lot of stigma around and misunderstanding of the mind and depression and maybe sometimes like people do anything to stay off of of medication. Yeah. Look, I'm all about that. Like yeah. I'm like like my wife's a pretty healthy person and and she's all about this health stuff and like so she doesn't want I kind of take kind of follow her lead on this. It's like, look, if I don't need to be on medication, I'm not going to be. Right. I'm, I'm all about that. Right, right. But sometimes, like, something's wrong. Like, if you if you break your arm, for example, you're going to go put a cast on that thing. You're going to strength. You're exactly. going to straighten it. Put a cast on it. Exactly. You're going to do things to fix it. And sometimes the mind is like literally short on chemicals. Like it's short on different types of things or has too much of different types of Absolutely. things. And you need to fix that. And that's sometimes what's needed. Now, sometimes you just need to like. You just need like to to get some counseling or maybe to get around some friends or to like to straighten your thinking. Like maybe sometimes it's just that. Yeah. Which so far for me, like it's that's been able to kind of correct yeah. it. And uh, for, for but, me, I, I totally agree with you. And for me, it was a kind of thing that I couldn't pray and read my Bible my way out of. I tried to. Right. I tried to. Yeah. Like maybe if I just take a weekend to get away and just really pray yep. and read my Bible. Maybe I'm not reading enough. Maybe I'm yep. not memorizing enough scripture. Yep. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Yes. So, but but I just could not. I could not pray or read my way out of it. Yep. And um, to the literally to the point where I just had to grow to just live with whatever that feeling was. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, maybe that's just how you know, you're just supposed to make do until you get to heaven, you right. know, like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, honest to God, I just did not know that it was act. I thought depression was, if I were depressed, I thought it would be more dramatic than it actually was. Mm, right. I thought it would be like, can't sleep, can't eat, can't get out of bed kind of thing. Right. But for me, I was highly productive. You know, oh, okay. the people, the people around me probably didn't know that I, 
my wife probably did, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> she, she knew something was off and something sure. wasn't right. But, but other, a lot of people are like day to day I was do I was being very productive, but part of the reason go back to the brain chemistry thing. As I look back at it, there were just so many, it, again, it was my, my, this workaholic, I, uh, idolatrous, mm-hmm. um, accomplishing kind of idolatry that I had. Mm-hmm. And I was just not sleep. I mean, I would go to bed at two in the morning and wake up at six or six thirty, and I would just do that every single day. Oh, were you were were you doing that because you couldn't sleep, or? Well, I had convinced myself that sleep was for the weak or something stupid. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like I mean, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have articulated it like that, but but I was just sleep when I'm dead. Exactly, and that was where it was leading. You know, oh yeah, I couldn't. I I recognized that I couldn't keep up the pace that I was at. Yeah, but but my thought was, if I'm really serious about making, you know, the Great Commission was just tattooed on my heart and on my mind. Make disciples of all nations, right? Mm -hmm. So, if I'm really serious about that, what? Why can't I give another hour? Why can't I give another? Oh, why can't man. get yeah. so, so if I'm yeah. really serious, why can't I just do yeah. why can't I go to the dorm at one AM and, and stay yes. in there while while the you know because you're not God, bro. Exactly. You're but John see, Farmer. I was too you're stupid. You're a man. To, I was too stupid just, to realize just that. Just to get out of bed and eat breakfast and go do some things that are positive to the world and contribute to the common good. Like, dude, that's at the end, that's about all we can do. But see, I had I just didn't now I am I'm much closer. I think I still struggle. I can't. I don't think I'm quite there. Yeah. I probably should be closer to that. Yeah. But I have I have learned to embrace limitations. Um, but at that point in my life, you know, I'm young and I'm, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to get after. Sure. And if Jesus died on the cross for my sin, if he's given that, I've been I had been conditioned. What would I not give in response? Right. What, right. No, I see what, that. What, yeah. what kind of yeah. response is so I was all I mean, there was no there's nobody more all in than I was. It felt mm-hmm. like, you know. So I was all in and I was paying I was totally paying for price for being that kind of all in. Yeah. So I've learned, you know, I forgot, I think it might be Robert Murray McShane that said uh, on his deathbed as a young man, he said, uh, that God has given me um a message and a horse. I've killed the horse and no longer can take the message. Oh, man. And um and I was and that was one of those wake up calls where I was like, okay. Yeah, I love that, dude. That's actually really helpful. So so yeah. That that was one See, of those wake up calls that made me go, all right, well, if that's true, then obviously five years of, you know, all out uh no holds bar ministry is not as effective as 30 years of consistent and yeah. persistent ministry. Yeah. yeah, see for, see I think um well by the way I was going to ask you when you came off those medications how was that was that awful was that hard or was it not too bad like, No um again I had some really I had a great mentor okay. um that had dealt with this before mm-hmm. so all the while um, first of all, I was on a really, really low dose. Okay. And when um, you come off, do you just like stair step down or you just stop one day? You're supposed to stair step down. Okay. You just stopped? <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was like literally they told, so the first thing was they told me for a year, whether you feel changes or not, you have like, do not miss a day. Um, you must, it, this stuff is messing with your brain chemistry. Basically, I'm not smart enough to understand all the terms and all that, but basically it is, it is resetting things in your brain, um, serotonin levels and, and yes. those kind of things. So 
Um, so they said, don't, you know, don't. And, and unfortunately, at the very beginning, I would take it for a couple of weeks and start to feel like, oh, man, I think the burden is lifting in some ways. Oh. And then I'd accidentally, not, not even intentionally, but I'd accidentally stop. And there were just these really horrific crashes that mm. happened. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. it's dangerous to, to just stop cold turkey. So I had done it for over a year consistently without missing. And then after talking, the other thing is, we, uh, Jaquel and I were doing couples counseling as well. Mm. So she was learning how to interpret some of my craziness. Mm-hmm. And um, so with the permission of her, it was like, okay, we just didn't get it. After we finished uh, the last thing, we just didn't get it refilled. Oh, I see. And the idea was, if I'm acting crazy, you know, yeah. not crazy like, you know, it was never a aggressive, like, sure. but it was more like, it was more implode than explode. Yeah, if it yeah. looks like I'm just like totally yep. um, getting eaten alive, yep. then, then, then we'll go back. But okay. thankfully, didn't, we haven't- Didn't we haven't, need to. Mm-hmm. And when you would like forget to take some of those medications for a season and you'd like kind of just kind of revert, like what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, it, it would, man- the craziest thing that happened, I was, um, I was the, um, I was the, uh, the chaplain for the basketball team at, at Payne college. So I convinced my wife to let me get an Xbox. Right. Mm-hmm. So for the one, team, right. Hey, right. To, well, which, which, which really was a great ministry tool. Um, the guys would come over, uh, to, to our apartment and they would do laundry and we'd play 2k, nice. uh, like NBA 2k together. Yep. Um, so, but one night, um, she's off doing something with, uh, her friends or whatever. And I'm at home by myself playing NBA 2K. I hadn't taken my medication in probably a week and a half and I didn't realize it at the time. Oh, wow. So I'm playing, I'm playing NBA 2K and I just get filled with a kind of rage that I've kind of never felt before. Hmm. And, um, I like broke, this is like solid wood chair that was in our apartment and uh, something happened in the vi- in the video game, which I'm not even a I'm really not a big video gamer at mm-hmm. all. But um, but I just started br- like I picked up this chair and just started slamming it, and it shattered to pieces. And at the end of it, I'm like, "What the crap?" Mm-hmm. Like I didn't recognize myself. Mm-hmm. Like, what I've never that's not it's not even really my personality to go yep. ballistic like that. And um, I'm like, "What is going on?" And then I start tracing it back, and I realize, oh. That's why they said don't don't just stop right. your medication. Yeah, so. yep, yeah. Well, years years ago, I felt so hopeless that uh, I've cut myself, and um, uh, and just but but a kind of a sullen like um, the way it manifests itself is more in more recent years. It's just like being real like hopeless and sullen and just dep- just depressed like don't want to do things mm-hmm. in the evening really just want to go watch TV you know yeah. and just be kind of yeah. kind of spiral down into your mm-hmm. little world and mm-hmm. and not just so but um I think uh what honestly what helps me a lot is well there has been at least a time I can think of where like what it took to change it was actually a change in my circumstances. Mm. Um, and so I don't know what, you know, I don't know how, how I would have gotten out of that one time if it like my circumstance hadn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but definitely what, what I, what 
for sure for me, and I know this is not for most people, uh, probably not for most people and certainly not for everyone. But uh, one thing that really does help me is exercise. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's just, again, that's just for me. Oh, yeah. But, like, I can feel if I can get, if I can go to CrossFit three days a week um, with some consistency, that really, really helps it changes me. Everything. Like it, yeah, it's the lead domino. It changes my mind. It changes my outlook. It changes my worldview. Like, it really does, it does help for sure. Um, but, uh, but no, it's not for everyone. Like sometimes you like, you got to get, you got to either go see a counselor or a therapist or like change the chemistry of your brain yeah. with, with yeah. medications or something. Yeah. So thankfully we have, we have these doctors. Oh, this is the other thing I was going to say. Like one time I was, this was, this was a while ago, but I was so hopeless, man. I was up late. It was probably one o'clock in the morning and, um, I was on our back patio, dude, it's, when you're in these situations, man, it's um, like you don't talk to people because you you feel shamed mm-hmm. and 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 you feel like if you just get your shit together, like you know, like you don't you don't need to put your you don't need to like bring them into your crap. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, and like hopelessness is is one just a dude. Hopelessness is a killer, bro. Like if you don't have hope, dude, nothing else is gonna be right. Mm-hmm. And um, I I felt so hopeless and so alone. I was smoking a cigar and I just took that cigar and boom, right on my left arm, bro, right there. Mm-hmm. Like, and dude, that freaking hurts. Mm-hmm. I don't suggest it for anyone. Yeah, yeah, that is. Because you feel that, bro. Yeah. You like there was a mark for a long mm-hmm. time. But just that hopelessness and that that sense of loss and just dude, it's the worst, man. It really is the worst. So if people are out there like, dude, you are not alone and yep. there are better days. There will be better days. You know, like hang in there. Yep. Do not quit. Yep. Like there's been so many times where uh, Pastor Ray um, has either uh, either said it or it was in a sermon, I can't remember, but it's just this idea of like five more minutes. Like just, just continue on for mm-hmm. five more minutes. Like mm-hmm. just don't quit. Like not now, right? Like no, don't don't quit yet. And like that is, there's been many times where I'm like, bro, you son of a, you, you don't quit. Right. Not right now. Five the, more minutes. And the the other the other thing is because sometimes that's not even enough. The other thing is you got to watch your circle. Who who are you letting in your life? Like it's really really important. You know Proverbs. What is it? Seventeen, either three or seventeen, seventeen. Um, uh, a friend loves always and a brother is born for adversity. Yeah. And, um, man, if I didn't have a wife that was, that is as supportive as she is and as like willing to handle the craziness and, and, and so on the same page, like, it's not just me that wants to make Christ known. Like that's where we we're we are we are locked in together in that. Um, but if I didn't have her and if I didn't have just a couple of friends that I could go to and just kind of be fully be, like fully kind of let it out, I, I don't think I would have made it through because yeah. I, I I was it became really clear to me how insufficient I was. Like I right. didn't I didn't have enough to just, because I, yeah. I'd, I'd used all that already. I already used yeah. whatever that was in the tank that says just five more minutes to, you know, go for, go just a little bit. Yeah. I'd used all that and I was exhausted. Yeah. I, I didn't have another second. Yeah. So if I didn't have, if I didn't have other people in my life that I, that I could fully lean on, I would have yeah. been, I would have been devastated. Yeah. 
yeah, thank God for community, man. Yeah. Seriously. I think, uh, you know, and this is the thing with community too, is like, um, it's God himself has community, you know, yeah. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Um, and God always has been. And, you know, is it accurate to say that God needs community? Probably not. Um, but he is community, he, he is community. Yeah. and that's and that's you know even wrapping your head around that is like it, it can, brings a gratefulness too because God didn't need us for community. God didn't need to create humans for community. Yeah. And um, another and, really great book, but mm-hmm. he has it in the Trinity. Yeah, exactly. There's community in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. It's like he was he was all sufficient. He had what he needed and still chose to create us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead with that book. Um, it's, uh, it's called zeal without burnout. I forgot Mm. the name of the author. It's a really thin book. Mm -hmm. Um, but the premise of the book is, is simply, um, you're not God. And because you're not God, you are needy. Yeah. God's not needy. Yeah. But you're not God. So you're needy. You need, I think his basic arguments were, uh, all people need a Sabbath. That is a, a day to, to rest and to be, to, mm. to cease from doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you need friends. Um, you need, what do you say? You need sleep, mm-hmm. which I was big for me. Like I, I prided myself on being able to function, which I did for, for a little while, for over a year, probably two, almost two years. Mm-hmm. I functioned with very minimal sleep, but I, it paid me back. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. like yeah. that, that, that you can only take out that much right. before you got you got to pay yes. that. You know, yep. that, that's yep. a debt that you will pay back. Yes. Um, so anyway, uh, zeal without burnout. Another yeah. really helpful yep. book in those terms. Let's talk about racial reconciliation. I yeah. know you have a lot of thoughts around this, yeah. and um, I love to hear them, dude. Okay. Wherever you want to jump in at. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, I heard someone say, I can't remember who it was, but someone said all ministry is autobiographical. And I really appreciate that because that's, uh, I think that's true. Um, and that's definitely true in my case. Mm-hmm. So I came to Christ as a sophomore at Valdosta State. And the guy that led me to Christ was a skinny white dude who, um, when I first saw him, I wanted to beat him up. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I just wanted nothing to do with this dude, right? Like, he comes out to our front lawn, like, walking on his tippy toes with his chest all poked out. And um, I'm on the football team, and I got a couple of, you know, probably eight of my boys with me. And we're just throwing the football on the front lawn, right? And for whatever reason, he, he like, trots into the middle of us and is like, hey, can I play? It's like, no, you can't play. Get away from us, you know? <laughs> He just um, wanted to throw football with you guys? Yeah, and I was just, for whatever reason, in my own heart, I was just being a jerk. And I'm like, you know, go away, you know. I didn't say that. I was yeah. like, sure, man, whatever, you yeah. know. And we let him throw. And and then, I guess he was trying to impress us or something, but he was throwing the ball as hard as he could. <laughs> like, Dude, I'd be doing the same thing, man. Like, if I was bro, throwing the football with you, like, I'd be giving it everything that I had. And and it's like, it was fine, but it's like, what? It was so clear. I was like, what is this dude trying to prove, man? Like, I, I and I had the conscious thought with some kind of explicit, uh, ex- explicit words in between. Like, yeah, I'm going to kick this dude's butt before this, before this is over. Um, that didn't happen, which I'm thankful for. But after that, dude just started randomly popping up at our dorm. 
So it was me and my boys like in the lobby watching basketball games or like, you know, playing board games, like hanging out, just a group of us that were just, were just hanging out all the time. And he would just randomly start popping up and putting himself in the mix. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude is like relentless. And he just, he was really relentless. He just wouldn't stop. And then finally, um, we started getting used to him coming around. So he just really just kind of nudged his way in. That's, that's what I mean by that awkward thing. It's like, right. I'm quite sure he knew that nobody wanted him around, mm. but he wanted, he wanted to make Christ known amongst us. And we How didn't did he know choose it. you guys? Or was he doing this to everyone? No, uh, he, he chose in our dorm. Um, oh, okay. He chose in our dorm. Because to he was minister. in your dorm or? No. No. Was he even in college? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, uh, oh, okay. he was, uh, he's either a junior or a senior when I was, I see. Uh, and that's the other thing. He's like clearly older than us. You don't, <laughs> you don't live here. It's like, what do you want, man? Go, go away. <laughs> we don't want you here. Yeah. And you're clearly a little uncomfortable too. Like, <laughs> let's just make this easy on everybody. Go yeah, away. Right. Um, but he didn't. And I'm yeah. really, really thankful. And, um, so eventually, uh, so he keeps hanging out with us and, and we're playing ping pong and like all these different, so a few months, he's just like hanging out. Then he's like, let's start a Bible study. And I'm like, and he had heard the way we spoke, the way we talked about girls, the, like the whole gamut of things. It's like we weren't really hiding who we were, right? Yeah. And um, he's like, hey, let's do this Bible study. And it, again, it was like this awkward, like this guy's a nice guy and I don't want to do this at all. But am I really going to be a jerk to this dude for no really good reason? I'll just go to the Bible mm. study. So I mm. went to the Bible study. Or I told him I was going to come to the Bible study. He's like, okay, cool. Bring all of your friends. So he made mm. me bring like everybody. And I'm like, all right. Um, so we did that. So he started having this Bible study kind of weekly. But then all the girls from the dorm started going to the Bible study too. So I was like, okay, this isn't that bad. Yeah. Right? Now you got a reason to be there. It's like, yeah, this is yeah. not that bad. Um, <laughs> But uh, even then, I didn't. This is kind of the long version of all this. But I didn't. I still didn't really. No, nothing in my life changed. Whatever. Um, the it actually about. This was the next year actually before I became a Christian. The next year, uh, I was on Facebook, like you know, acting a fool, and he sent me a personal message. That was I t- the whole time I'd been telling him, "Yeah, I'm a Christian. Let's you know, sure, whatever. Well, let's do that." Because I, I grew up going to church, whatever. Mm. But um, my heart was not changed. My heart was not for Jesus, right? But this whole time, I'm telling him I'm a Christian. Um, so the next the next year, actually, I um, I'm acting a fool on Facebook on the internet, and he sends me a message. that's basically like, "Hey, you can't keep you can't keep saying that you know and love Jesus, and yet you're acting you're you're, you're saying these words like this doesn't say that that's true of you." And I was just convicted. I was just convicted. So from then that point on the dynamic of our relationship changed and now I was more apt to listen to him for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, so then he was like, well, let's do a Bible study. Just me and you. This is like a full year after this almost. Wow. He's like, let's just do a Bible study. Just me and you my sophomore year. And I said, okay, sure. I quit the football team. So my life was kind of in a spiral already. Like I was having all these identity issues. If I'm not John, the football player, then who am I? You know, why'd you quit the football team? Was that faith related? Looking back at it, it was in the okay. moment. It wasn't in okay. the moment. I was fed up with some things, and um, I kind of made a rash decision, basically to say screw you to the coaches. Um, 
Uh, but in all actuality, what it was, you know, it was Jeremiah two thirteen. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So I've been going to the ac- the acclimates that I get from playing sports. I've been going to that for life, and it just dried up. It just mm-hmm. was not fun mm-hmm. anymore. I was tired of practice. I was tired of all the crap that came with it. So I just pushed away and said, "Forget that." You know, I'll make my own way. Um, anyway, so it was in the midst of this that he, he reached out to me. We started doing this Bible study. We did this Bible study. It totally changed my life. So that's my story of how I came to faith. Mm-hmm. But what came next was, so this is a white guy that had led me to Christ. And um, I didn't know it, but Campus Outreach was like a predominantly white ministry. Mm. So I'm like, okay. But he starts teaching me the Bible, and I'm like, I am smitten for Christ at this point. Like I'm, I'm all in. I'm learning how to memorize the Bible. He's teaching me how to study the Bible. He's teaching me how to pray. He's teaching me how to share the bridge diagram, like all these different things. And he tells me about this thing called Beach Project, which is just like a eight-week summer program uh, that Canvas Outreach does on the beach to more intensely uh, teach students all these things. So I'm like, if we're learning this stuff, if I'm going to get to know Jesus better, I'm there. And I didn't really ask any more, m- much more questions, but I get there and I'm like one of the only black people there. I'm like, what is mm-hmm. this? You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, man, this is, first of all, I don't want to be friends with any of these people. I treated them like I treated, you know, Patrick. Yeah. It's like, I don't really want to know you guys. I'm here mm-hmm. for the Bible and for this training. And I don't really care about the, the friendships, quote unquote, friendships that you guys have to offer, which is not the best, uh, <laughs> the best attitude, but that's just where I kind of, I kind of was with it. Sure. So at the end of the beach project, we're going back to our campus. And one of the, one of the, uh, girls in our ministry was like, Hey, when you get, when we get back to school, don't forget us. Don't, uh, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we're your family now. Like, mm-hmm. and it was this fir- the first time I had to think about it. Like, Whoa, I now exist in two worlds. Mm-hmm. I've got all my, all the homies, mm-hmm. right. That I play football with. And then I've got all these people now that I have this deeper and different connection with. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know. And all these people are white and all these people are black. Mm-hmm. So now what do, how, how do I exist mm-hmm. in this world? Like, what does this look like now for me? So for the rest of my time in college, I was kind of, I was wading those waters. Again, like I said, I had a few different cousins come down. One uh, came down, became a Christian and was plugged into this ministry with us. And then the very next year, another one of our cousins came, came down, uh, became a Christian and plugged into this ministry with us. And we started to, uh, to um, slowly but surely, it started to become more and more like this hodgepodge of black and white, mm. uh, male and female, black and white. And it was, it was this really beautiful thing. And um, I became more and more convinced that this is what it was supposed to look like in the first. This is not this is not an anomaly. This is what it should look like. I had a friend of ours, a white guy who played on the baseball team. And, uh, he came home from, this is while I'm still in school. I think I'm a senior at this point. And I think he was a sophomore at this point. And it's me and my cousins and a couple other guys. And then, um, and we're sitting in this living room and he comes in and he looks like really dejected. Um, and we're like, yo, what's going on? Are you okay? He's like, yeah, I was just at home. And my friends were telling these really racist jokes. And it was the first time that I realized that those weren't okay. 
no, I'm is sorry. this is this was this a white guy? This is a white guy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So this there's a white. So basically, we're in this living room with uh, black and white guys together, and we are all had become pretty good friends through through our experiences with campus outreach. All of us are pretty new uh, in the faith, and this this white guy comes in dejected and basically says, "I through hanging out with you guys, I realize now some of the jokes that I used to make were not okay. I didn't even know those things were out of bounds until my friends." started saying them when I went home and now I'm totally changed. Like the way, the things that I accept and don't accept have totally changed. And to me, I was like, man, that's really important. How do you, how do you kill racism? That was the first time where I started to realize like, Oh no, 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 no. This guy's going to go on to be a business owner and a leader. And now he can't be, he can't be what he might have been right. had he not had this experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that made me say, this is worth multiplying yep. a hundred, a thousand times over. Yeah. This right, whatever this environment is that this dude is being grown up in mm-hmm. or has been grown up in, that's worth multiplying because whether he knows it or not, his life has been totally changed. Mm-hmm. Um so so that's that's kind of what's began to set me on this trajectory. And I, mm-hmm. and then I started to realize more and more like um, because of the way that I'd grown up that, um, I just knew how to wade in and out of, uh, different cultural, um, circumstances that some people just didn't know how to, mm-hmm. how to, how, didn't know how to wade. So I'm like, okay, that's the Lord. And I'm, I'm going to press into that. Um, so we started off when I, when I became a Christian at, at Valdosta, our ministry was just predominantly white and it was predominantly female actually. Hmm. Um, and then when I graduated, it was like 50, 50 white and black, 50, 50 male and female. And I was like, well, and, and that's what we, we just started praying and praying, asking God to do that. And he did. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. I wonder if, I wonder if we could multiply that out and it more. And I'm reading and studying the scriptures and I'm seeing more and more. I think this is on God's, this is what is on God's heart. You know, Ephesians two, one through 10, it's all about the, the vertical and horizontal, uh, the, the vertical reconciliation between God and man, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin and God raised you up and brought you to newness of life by grace. You know, like he has vertically reconciled you. And then the very next thing that he says, right? Uh, 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 chapter two, 11 through 15, 17, he's broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. Mm-hmm. So if it's true that the vertical reconciliation has happened, how do we? Right. How does that get expressed? That get yeah. that gets expressed through horizontal. There yeah. is no more, no more Jew and uh, uh, Gentile. You know that those those barriers of reconciliation are broken down, mm-hmm. and now he's brought you know those who are near. He's brought together those who are near and those who are far off. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing those things in the scripture, and then my experiences are actually matching that. And I'm like, mm. oh, so I go to Georgia Southern, and um, it's a, it's, you know, like I said, it's an interesting college because, um, first of all, they're, it's about one third black, which is pretty crazy. Mm. Almost a third, a little, a little less than a third, but almost a third black at the time. It might've changed by now, but, but also there was like this good old boy population as well of, um, you know, I, I, it sounds like I have a thousand cousins, but I had another cousin that came to school down at Georgia Southern while I was working there. And um, one night she was walking home and she walked by the white fraternity houses and the guys just started to berate her with the N word and screaming at her and saying all these different things. And um, in college 10 years ago. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. At Georgia Southern. 
Um, is right this, off. Is this common? I mean, that's like it's that's not freaking uncommon. insane. It's not. So there. So that's that's what that's what. So that's that's what Georgia Southern kind of is. It's the it's this combination of. It's just it's 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 uh. There's a lot of things there, if that makes mm. any sense. So there is that population where you'll see somebody drive by with the Confederate flag on their truck, but then there's also this really large black population and uh, all the black uh, sororities and fraternities and a kind of a black identity on, camp- on campus as well. So I was coming into that um, as a campus minister, and our ministry, when I got there, our students were predominantly white. So I'm like, well, obviously I... I will minister to any student that will give me an ear for, to, for, for the gospel. I, I'm going to minister to them, and I did. But I want to aim specifically at African Americans on campus and, um, and making a ministry that is reflective of the greater context of, uh, of what Georgia Southern is. And um, in, a, in just a few years, like the ministry went from mostly white and um, yeah, when I say mostly white, I mean almost everybody almost white. All white. Um, to when I was leaving, like there had became generations of. Uh, so, so let me put it this way: we were at this uh, large group meeting, and a guy that I was discipling, me and him got into this conversation because the room there was probably two hundred people in the room, and it was almost almost exactly half black and half white, or half mm-hmm. minority and mm-hmm. half half white. And I was like, man, look at this. This is like really awesome. And a dude that he was discipling was like, what's the big deal? It's like always like this. And to me, that struck, that was another light bulb. I was like, whoa, that's exactly how he should feel. Right. Like, and and what if one day my kids walk into church and they see the multi-ethnic bride of Christ and me and others are like glorying over it, and they're they're like, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, yes, this. absolutely. To me, I was like, that is the ideal that's worth yes, uh, it's worth aiming at. Yes. Um, well, on that note, wasn't it um, MLK who said 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated mm-hmm. time in America? Yeah. What's with that? I mean, that's that sounds like bullshit. Like, like I'm not saying that's obviously. I'm not saying that his statement or that I'm saying. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ, and that's true. Like that's bullshit. Whatever. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so it, it starts. You know, the, the the reason the black church exists is because of uh, the historical disenfranchisement that happened in the white church. Sure. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I hate that. For for to me, I think let me let me let me start with the end in mind. I think one of the one of the things I loved about I love about Emmanuel and one of the reasons I came to Emmanuel is because it's clear that we really do want to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in our city. And to me, that's I didn't have that exact language the other places I was at, but to me. One of my one of my really good friends in college was about a hundred pound girl named Sarah, and she was a blonde hair white girl, and um, and she was a ballerina. <laughs> we just <laughs> we could not be any more opposite. Like, and uh, and 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 she was like one of my best friends. Like, um, I'm talking about best friends, like to the point where, um. Her dad was a, a doctor, and for for something I can't remember why we were in 
making. But um, but I had met her parents a couple of times, and I'd become really cool, like close friends with her parents yeah. as well. And um, and her mom would like when I'd walk in the door, her mom would be like, "Oh, did I show you this this tape of Sarah as a ballerina?" And she would like <laughs> force me to sit down and watch like oh, that sounds film, like torture film. <laughs> it was the cool, but it was super cool because it was like me and this girl should never be friends, right? You know. There was a couple of times that we were, we were in a small, the same small group in Valdosta. And there was a couple of times where um, we had to like, you know, make cookies or something for the small group. So we'd go to Publix, uh, the local Publix, and get stuff. It'd just be me, her, and, you know, one of the person, like my cousin or somebody like that. But it's just clear. Um, there was one time particularly where we're grabbing stuff in a cart. And this it was like an older white lady that just kind of like cocked her head at us. And I was like, what? Like, what's going on? To us, our interaction was totally normal. Yeah. But what I realized was, it's like, okay, you two are not dating. You're definitely not brother and sister. Yeah. What the heck are you guys doing? Yeah. Like, what is this? Yeah. You know, what is yeah. this thing? Um, and to me, I was like, that's the beauty of Jesus. Yes. And I'm like, what, what Jesus does, and I have a lot of friends, I have a lot of friends that are dear brothers of mine. Um, that I would never be friends with if I wasn't a Christian. Mm-hmm. We'd never be in the same room together. Right. We would never yeah. be, you know, we would never, politically, we wouldn't, we wouldn't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, just our, our worldview in general is just so mm-hmm. diametrically opposed to one another. But what, what happens when Christ reconciles us to him mm-hmm. is he also, you know, he, that's, that's the beauty of the doctrine of adoption, right? We yes. are adopted to to uh, to God as his as his children, yeah. But in that adoption, we receive brothers and sisters, yes. So now we've got this family of God. Whether you like it or not, that's your family, you know. And yeah, and that's a, and so yeah. So so that started to happen. So uh, let me fast forward. Well, and just on that, I mean, you do have actually a great point. As we talked about the church thing, what what I guess what you know when you see something like that. Um, where when you see a statement like that, it's like, man, like we're supposed to be the Christ followers. Like we're supposed to be the ones that are the example to follow. And yet if that's the state of the church on this matter and probably others, but on this matter, it's like, man, we're like doing the worst at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So we, basically, yeah, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot the question. So I'll come back there. Yeah. It, it's, it's the existence of a segregated church is a mark on the body of Christ. And MLK said as much in the letter to a Birmingham jail or from, from a Birmingham jail. He said, uh, he, he, he starts speaking about um, how deeply disappointed he was with the church because this was such a key, mm-hmm. that was such a key moment for the church to unite and say, this is right. And this is wrong. Yeah. And the church. So thir- the white church specifically uh, so thoroughly uh, fumbled the mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. and um, so we've we've had to. Do, there's been ripple effects that have happened, and the existence of the black church has been an utter necessity mm-hmm. um, in, in in American history for sure. Because um, otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be able to have leaders, mm-hmm. and and we wouldn't have a voice and um, we wouldn't have a place to, to gather and to, that would be our, that it was one of the original places that were, was our, our space. That was actually mm. our space where mm-hmm. we can be, 
where we could be us. So the mm-hmm. existence of the black church is an absolute necessity, mm-hmm. and it has been, but it's an unfortunateness. I would mm-hmm. say it's an unfortunate necessity. Yeah, and now do you still, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is the is the goal that we have just mixed race, ethnic, uh, cultural, like multi-ethnic, multicultural churches kind of, everywhere or is like still that like is that still like a thing of beauty where you might have black churches hispanic churches mixed churches like like what are your thoughts on that yeah i i think i think uh race isn't a goal you know mm-hmm. i don't think that's a goal i think i think glorifying jesus where you are is the goal mm-hmm. um making much of jesus right where you are is the goal and i think you're there is space for there is space for ethnically monocultural or, or yeah for mono for monocultural churches there is space mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. I think I think there also is a real need and a real place for a multi ethnic church mm-hmm. and I think that probably should that probably should be more of the norm than not. Yeah, I totally when, when agree. Paul, when yeah. Paul writes to the church, uh, to, to the given churches that he writes, he writes to the church at Colossae or to the mm-hmm. church at Corinth, um, not to the Jewish church at Corinth and to the Gentile church. at. The expectation is if Christ has, if Christ really has reconciled you to him, y'all got to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. I mean, he takes a portion of Philippians to say, hey, those two ladies, make sure they're getting along. Mm-hmm. Like he takes a point of his letter to say relationships matter. Mm-hmm. One, here's the other thing. It's all in, under the umbrella of the Great Commission, right? Why mm-hmm. does the church exist? The church doesn't exist just to exist. The church exists to make disciples of all nations, mm-hmm. right? If you read through the Gospels, the constant thump, the constant heartbeat is the Great Commission. Right. Um, Specifically in the Gospel of John, such and such such didn't happen because his hour had not yet come. Such and such had not happened because his hour had not yet come. And then, boom, his hour had come and then Christ is uh, crucified, obviously resurrected, glorified. Right. Mm -hmm. Great Commission. It's all about that Great Commission narrative and then the thrust for it. Okay, now that this has happened, now that I've completed salvation, make disciples of all nations. But in the new, the rest of the New Testament, um, after Acts, right, all the epistles, you don't really hear of the Great Commission in in any of any of the if any in any of the epistles. Mm, mm-hmm. But what you constantly hear is unity, the yeah. unity. One yeah. of the constant keystrokes in in the epistles is the unity of the body of Christ. And I think what that what that's illustrating to us is. Obviously, the Great Commission hasn't gone away. It's, we exist to fulfill the Great Commission, and we cannot do that disunified. Yeah. So, so what makes the real Jesus non-ignorable? What, what makes him the most non-ignorable? If you are in a place that is, especially in the South, especially in the South, that has historically had some of the most, um, in our nation's history, some of the most horrific acts have happened in the South on the basis of race. If you can now have a church who um, who are mending those kind of historical wounds, 
looking them in the face, look, not brushing over them, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but looking those things in the face and saying, okay, now how do we as a body of Christ respond collectively to this? I think that's what, I think that's what the world is waiting for. Yeah. It, the world is waiting for a church um, that, that dwells in honesty and power, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a church that is able to own and repent of its own issues mm-hmm. um, and also offer a witness of, uh, uh, the, I think the church, is, I think Christ is most glorified by his church when outsiders look at them and say, what is this? These men mm-hmm. who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Right? Yes. Like, look at these, look, who are these people? Yes. And I think uh, in this country and in the South especially, I think race is a very key component to that. Totally agree. And you're right. I mean, the fact is, it is a big deal because, well, this is, and this is the sad part when we think about like reconciliation, like wreck, like to go back or read, to go back to something. I'm not sure what like the meaning of conciliation would be, but I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Like the coming together, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. the oneness, the unity, that type of thing. But you can't really like correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean it would be tough to like reconcile in the true state of the meaning of that word in American history because we just had it jacked up basically from the get-go. For sure. And uh and so if we're gonna like reconcile, truly reconcile, we actually need to go back to Adam. Like that's where this whole thing started is when like the sin, that's like when that sin happened, this was one of the things that just, this is one of the outcomes of like that original sin. Absolutely. But, um, but man, when you think about like the importance of this subject, it really is, it's probably more important than, than, than most people think on a daily basis. And probably certainly more important than most white people think on a daily basis in the church. Dude, our country went to war. Like, we had our only civil war. This is, like, one of the biggest issues of our only civil war this country's ever had. Yeah. So it's so, it's so like, rooted in. It's so, there's so much history here. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's what, and, I, and I, don't, I don't speak for all black people, but generally speaking, um, I think that's one of the things that's so hurtful is exactly when when there's not an acknowledgement exactly. of just how devastating and, and you know and, and the reality is you know m- most black people um, are very very aware of their blackness on a day to day basis. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, again, I, and I don't like I said, I'm not speaking for everybody, but but yeah, it's a, I mean, just today, for instance. Um, and this is a very, very small, for instance, but I'm, I'm playing on the front porch with, uh, with uh, my wife and son. And, uh, there's a girl that runs, um, that runs every day up our block, right? White girl. And, uh, we can see her through the ring camera and whenever, whenever she's out there, she just normally just runs right up our street. But whenever I'm and whenever, you know, Jaquel or, uh, LJ is outside, no big deal. But whenever I'm out there, she like totally crosses the street, right? Every time. Are you talking about like when you're standing on the sidewalk? No, 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 no. You're in your yard? I'm standing on my porch. 
<laughs> and you can see her running, and then she crosses the street, comes by you, and crosses back over again? Crosses back over, yeah. No, she does not. Oh, yeah, every Dude, time. Dude, there's no way this happens anymore. No, yeah, every time. you got to be kidding and, me. And do I know 100% that she's being racist? No, I don't know. I haven't had a, a conversation guess, with her. though? I mean... But it does cross my mind, like, is my point. It's just men in general? Like... <laughs> I don't. That's that's what, that, that's what I mean by just aware of just aware of of who I am, right? So is it just because I'm a big guy and yeah. she feels, th- or maybe it's just circum- maybe it's just happenstance. I don't know, and I can't know, right? But what I am saying is that I'm aware of it, and that's a thought. I'm like, dang, is it like what's up? Like why? Yeah, I, I don't understand. And I try to be friendly, and sometimes I try to, but there's it's always cross the street, run up, cross back, does it run? Crosses back. How like often are thing. black men aware of like how how good looking they are? I don't know what that. No, means. have you? Has that thought ever <laughs> crossed your mind? Come on now, seriously. Um, you know, how like different like ethnicities or races or like nationalities. Like they like black men are like good looking. Um, like the like the best looking men I know, they're black. Oh well, black Is don't it, crack. You heard of that? <laughs> <laughs> I did now. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I don't know. Um, one of the things I think you might've mentioned this before in, uh, might've been in an elder meeting was, um, because I think this is, this is like, this is prevalent. Like if the majority, so in this case, sorry, we can, we can go white and black, but so in a lot of churches, the majority is going to be a white, right? So anytime you have like a majority that's trying to welcome in a minority, mm-hmm. You, you're going to need to change some things. Because if you think about it just like objectively, if, um, if, if it's like, all right, yeah, we want, to be, we want to be multicultural, but we don't want to change anything. Well, now the majority is saying we don't want to change, but we want, to, we want y'all to come in and we want to do this thing together, but we don't want to change. So now the minority has to change, and that's just not fair. That's yeah. not even right. And like that, that's not even – it shouldn't work. That's largely been um – that's largely been the, in my experience, that's largely been the white church's response is, yeah, you guys, right, yeah, you, yeah, come you on. black people, especially, especially somebody like me that, uh, that can galvanize black people and they can like, you know, that can be used for evil in, in, mm. a, in the sense mm-hmm. of, all right, now, John, now you go get all your black friends and bring them to the white church. Right. And, and but we make don't sure, change much. But make sure you put on some, uh, some, some Chacos and, you know, yeah. you put on your, your best polo shirt and, Right. Make sure, and then and then come over. Yeah, right? and we'll sing our boring ass music. Exactly. You know what I mean, and exactly. hope you guys, you know, we'll, like we'll pound away at the at the organ or right. whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I heard uh, I heard a brother named uh, Sung Chen Ra once say, you know, it's not that the the myth of um, the great melting pot is just not true. Sociologists have even acknowledged that America is not a melting pot. Um, it's more like uh, a salad bowl mm. um, where you have Asian cultures and uh, uh, African-American cultures and white cultures and Hispanic cultures all existing together. But he said, if that's the case, then what white evangelicalism has done is it's taken a salad bowl and it's dumped ranch dressing on it. It's dumped ranch dressing on it to the point where all the other things that you're supposed to be able to taste in that salad bowl are now drowned out by this overwhelming ranch flavor. Oh, and, man, that's and, a good way to put it. And that ruins, that ruins the flavor of the salad, right? Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, when it, comes to, when it comes to racial reconciliation, that's what you want to call it, 
which is a bit of a misnomer because we were never reconciled to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when it comes to this idea of racial unity and cross-cultural unity, there has to be um, a willingness on whoever the, major- the majority culture is um, to do the thing that we humans are most uncomfortable with, and that is r- let go of power. Mm-hmm. That's key. We have there, there has to be, uh, and and you know, having having been a, a black dude in white spaces for a while now, um, that becomes kind of some of the criteria as to whether I want to be involved in a space or not. Is how do these particular? I mean, just being, let me be very honest with you about my mindset, especially when I started coming to Emmanuel, like. How do these white people treat power? I really want to know that because if it's if it's if it looks like or it smells like they're just doing things for a look, mm-hmm. um, or if it looks like they want me, you know, if it, if it's taxation without representation, yes, meaning uh, meaning, hey, John, bring all your black friends and yes. um, what you know, with yep. no real seat at the table, no real yes. influence, no uh, no real ability to um, change things. Yes in the environment, then that's, that's tokenism, right? Yes. Um, and you need to stay away and your black friends need to stay away from and, that. And it's, and, and as a, as a, as a shepherd in my own heart, I need to protect my black friends from those yes, spaces. hundred percent. Um, because they're only, it's only going to be there to their detriment that they get it. And, and, and the bat. So there are a lot of well-meaning in my experience, there are a lot of well-meaning white people um, that actually are doing the very cause that they want to prop up injustice or 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 harm mm. because of this this kind of if we're gonna if if you're gonna do racial reconciliation mm-hmm. then be ready to uh, take your hand off of the wheel and let yes. other people drive as well yes um and that, and I, I actually I can't remember what I was listening to of Malcolm Gladwell's but he started talking about this dichotomy of tokenism versus trailblazing Hmm. and um and i think that's for for i've been able to become a mentor to some young black ministers now who are in some of them are in different uh mixed race spaces and that's the dichotomy that i'm constantly talking them through is Mm -hmm. there's a difference between tokenism and trailblazing Mm mm-hmm Every, we got to trailblaze, right? Mm-hmm. If if this is going to happen, there's going to have to be somebody who did it first or yes. a, a small group of people who had the vision to see this thing through. Um, but that's only tokenism if it doesn't come with real power, really real say so real influence, a seat at the table. Right. Yes. Um, um, and I think that's, I think that's where we are. That if, yep. if we were, if we're ever going to become, a multi-ethnic church that really props up Jesus. Um, we've got to give, uh, we've got to give each other the gift of uncomfortability, right? Mm-hmm. And the church largely in our country has had a Burger King mentality mm. where it's have it your way, especially in the South, especially mm-hmm. in the South where there is a church and sometimes a pretty decent church within a handful of miles of one another. Mm-hmm. And now in the digital age, you can just type in your area code and mm-hmm. the best X29 churches will pop up or mm-hmm. the best gospel coalition churches will pop up or the best this or that church. 
uh, PCA, Baptist, whatever churches will pop up and mm-hmm. you can look them up and you can, you can have it for lack of a better word. You can have it your way. Yeah. So that doesn't jive with the Christianity that, that, that Jesus says foxes have holes and yes. birds of the air have nests. Yeah. Or b- birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah. And he's calling us into that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Don't you think it's also so tied in with like, there's two, there's probably more, but like there's two things that so that come to mind here is this, this issue being so tied in with one cultural Christianity and you have like these, these, um, like almost like good old boy networks or churches or whatever. And they don't even know that, but it's, 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 um, the church and its people are more concerned about status quo and the social, like going to church actually gives you a social advantage. And so you're going to do that. And, yeah. and also like there is something that feels good about getting up on Sunday, getting dressed, going to church with your family, coming home, having lunch. Like, like so there long is, as you're there, on the in crowd. So long as you're on your in crowd. Like there is, but what I'm saying is like, you can kind of check a box. Like you can use it to check a box a little bit. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's even like, you know, when you do something that takes a little discipline or whatever, like it feels good. Like, and so you have this, like, this people going to church because it's a thing to do. It's socially advantageous. This cultural Christianity, they're not going hard after the real Jesus for sure. Not, um, would they say that they are, you know, maybe, but as long as like God doesn't ask them to change their lifestyle or change something in their business or change their circle of friends or change their social status or change their money. Like as long as none of that changes, yeah, they're all in with God. Yeah, I just question uh, but, if that's actually Christianity. Well, of course it's not. But <laughs> yeah. like, so like cultural Christianity, that just seems to be such a big part of this too, because that's that's where like tokenism is like just going to be blatant, like mm-hmm. and 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 not even like apologize for. And then also political, like is dude, so much stuff is so political now. Like you can't even have. It's tough to have a conversation <clears throat> with a few people about. Um, like how to help the poor mm-hmm. without that being political mm-hmm. in the first 45 seconds mm-hmm. in people's mind. Yeah. And so like this topic is so tied in, I think with those two things too. So how do we like, how do you, how do you combat that? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, as much as the digital age has connected us, it's also, it's, it's really not, connected us so much as it's put us in pretty clear bunkers right right so well, the algorithm to even help you do that like boom, twitter that, for example it ha- it it just pulls up things that you're interested in because they want clicks right right so if you've clicked on it before they're going to give you something similar so you can click on that right yep. so if you've if you're of one political persuasion you're going to think that everything in the whole world is saying what you're saying because it just keeps on feeding you whatever you've seen already. Right. So it puts you in this, it actually just pushes you, puts you more thoroughly in a camp and in a bunker in a, in your own little concealed world. Um, so, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the, I think that's one of the main arguments for the multi-ethnic church right now in our small group. Um, there is, uh, there are obviously me and my family, there are a few other black women and there are, uh, a a few white families and there's a cop, a guy that just became a cop. 
and we're coming. Is that Mac? Yeah, yeah. He yeah. was just on here. Oh, is that yeah, awesome? a couple days yeah. ago. Yeah, that's yep. awesome. So, but but the cool thing is, we're all coming from really different places, and there's been a couple of times in our discussions where um, I'm kind of having a referee through some not heated discussion, mm. but it could, you know, it's getting there. Like, and that, and there's, I think there's, I think there's something really important about that. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, what each side wants to do is make a caricature out of the other side. Mm-hmm. And obviously that caricature is foolish and silly and wrong and, mm-hmm. and the worst, you know, in the worst case evil, right? Whatever the, the furthest caricature of the right or the left or whatever is, could, could be construed as something really ugly and evil. But the truth is most of us are somewhere somewhere a little bit more reasonable. Mm-hmm. And if we could only get in the same space with one another and hear one another out, um, then there could be constructive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There could be constructive conversation. And, yeah. and we've already seen that some in our, in our small group where, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, there are certain people in our group that are just on different planets as sure. far as worldview is concerned. Yeah. But both sincerely love Jesus. Yeah. Sincerely are walking with him. Yeah. And are now trying to, figure out how this is now my sister in Christ. How do I, yeah. How do I navigate these new waters? Well, you're right about that's beautiful. That is beautiful. And you're totally right about your environment, where you're getting information are uh, from uh, who you're talking with that type, that type of thing. Like I, there was a shift when we moved to Nashville in 2014, because before that I was more out in the country. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was more, uh, Republican. I was more capitalistic. I was more pick, you know, pick yourself up by your shoelaces kind of thing, like self-made, you know, and, uh, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed by that. You know, I'm pretty embarrassed by that. And when you come to a city and you see more people and from different walks of life and different nationalities and different upbringings, dude, you see parts of this city where I'm just telling you right now, like if I was born in those parts of the city, Dude, dude, I'm barely, I'm barely okay. And I came from a good family. Right. Like I had so much momentum before, uh, you know, I even became a living thing in my mother's mm-hmm. womb. So mm-hmm. much momentum, mm-hmm. dude, without that momentum, I don't, dude, I don't not know. Like I have so much respect for people that, that even kind of make it through when you come from some of these places. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's changed living close to a city for me has changed my worldview. It's changed. I'm not very political at all, but like, it's even changed some of that. Um, like it's just, you see firsthand and you experience more of the world because that's what a city, that's one of the advantages of being in the city is like, you can see different worldviews and different upbringings in like a 10 mile, mm-hmm. like diameter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you can see so much of the world. That's what's really cool about a city. Yeah. Um, so, you know, experiencing and being around different things, uh, it does change. One of the things I think that, I think this was what you had mentioned before, just back to like the church wanting to do their thing, um, is, you know, if you are, um, if, if you're trying, if your church is trying to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, and as a white person, if you're not uncomfortable with 25% of the songs or the singing, you're just not doing it right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you got to, that's, that's a practical thing. You got to expect if you want to be, if you want to like be home for different 
cultures, nationalities, ethnicities, that type yeah. of thing, then you you can't just have like everything geared towards your particular cultural cultural nationality or ethnicity. That's well, not going to work. Let me interject there. In my experience, um, here's how my white brethren have thought. There is black culture. There is Hispanic culture. There's Asian culture. And then there's normal. And that little subtle nuance is really when whatever your, that's, that is the danger of being in the majority culture. Yes. In, in the majority, it's like being a fish in water, right? They don't know that they're equipped to breathe here. You throw a lion in the water, right? And obviously he's, you know, though he is a, though he is a, a, a majestic, you know, beast of an animal, right? He's gonna struggle, mm-hmm. right? Because yep. he's in the he's yep. not in the environment that he was uh he is most comfortable in. Yes. Right. And that's all analogies kind of break down, but you get what I'm saying. Yep. Like in the majority culture, what's happening is you are a fish in water and you don't realize it. You don't and and what's happening when outsiders, particularly different minorities, are coming into the space, they're expressing in different ways forms of discomfort. And if you don't have the, uh, the cultural intelligence to be able to say, oh, it's because it's because they don't it's it's because we have a distinct culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And just like other groups have distinct cultures, mm-hmm. we also have a distinct culture and, and, and operate most fluently and easily. In yes. It. So but when we begin to recognize that, when we begin to realize, OK, I do have a distinct culture, I am operating that way. Others don't, and culture is not right or wrong. It's not moral or amoral, right? It just, it's just different, right? right? There's just, there are good and beautiful things in each, right? So if we know that, then we've got to do some give and take here. Mm-hmm. And to the degree that we're willing to, it's, it, it comes back to hospitality in a lot of ways, right? To the, to the degree that we're willing to be hospitable to others, is to the degree that we're going to be able to grow and express the multi-ethnic mm-hmm. beauty of the bride of Christ, mm-hmm. you know? And, and yeah, I think, I think for, for, for my African American brothers and sisters that find themselves in majority white spaces, um, in some ways, and this is what I generally always say in our, in, you know, as I, as I'm meeting with my, my brothers and sisters, my African-American brothers and sisters, um, you've been given a gift and that gift is discomfort. And because what, what you're being able to, there's not a you're not in these things for its social advantages, right? Mm -hmm. You're here to know and love and worship Jesus. Right. And you're willing to block out some of the other noise so that you might you might see him, experience him, worship him, and feast on his word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a gift that we also want to give to our white brothers and sisters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, and, and I think that's a gift. Oh, that the, right, I right, think, right. I think that's a gift that the church needs. We need but They have to, to be able to receive it, though, too, right? Because exactly. otherwise and, they get uncomfortable and they don't realize this is actually helping them and they just can't handle it. Right, right. And... and there's a lot of other things that you could say along those terms, but I, I think um, the more we press towards, um, there's a pastor in New York who 
um, had hired as not too long ago, hired a African-American woman to be the worship leader. And he said to her, your job is to make uh, me uncomfortable 25% of the time. And that was, he's a white pastor. Uh, he's actually Asian. He's oh, actually okay. Asian. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a majority. I'm pretty sure it's a majority yeah. white context. Yep. And, uh, and I think there's something really wise about that. Yes. I think there's something really wise about that. Uh, yep. And, and, um, and I don't know what the threshold is or what the exact percentage is, but we should all be pressing towards, you know, Philippians three, considering others as more important than ourselves. Yeah. Right. And if, and if we, we can do that culturally as well, if we yep. can show deference to our brothers and sisters and die to ourselves, uh, there's this old analogy. It's actually a football coach that gave me this. He said, um, here's a group of people. Um, that died in a plane crash altogether. And uh, Group A, they died in a plane crash. And they woke up, and um, all of them woke up, having died, and this really beautiful table was spread out. And, um, and they had this porridge in front of them. Each one of them had this beautiful bowl of porridge in front of them. And they thought, I must be in heaven, Right. Um, and they had a wooden spoon taped to the end of their hand. And uh, they dug into the thing, but the spoon was too long and they could not. They mm. couldn't. And what they realized was they were in hell mm. because they had this, this really beautiful, delicious thing in front of them, but they could not feed themselves. Right. Mm. Um, and then he said there was another group of people that died in the same plane crash, woke up at the same table, and they realized they had this, por- this really beautiful porridge in front of them. And instead of trying to feed themselves, they dug in the other person's porridge and everybody fed the person across uh, from Yeah, it's beautiful. Right? Yeah. And I think that's I think that's the picture of the church. You yeah. know. Um, that was a football coach that gave me that, you know, analogy. Yep. Um, that's a picture of the church. Like we are meant to not worry about where our next meal is coming from. Yeah. But but to be um as concerned with making sure the person across from me is eating. Yes. Um, and, and fed by the, the worship, the preaching, yep. every aspect of service, small groups, all those yep. kind of things, right? Yep. We want to consider others as more important than yep. ourselves. So we got to yeah. fight for that. Well, the two kind of the big concerns I, I have is, uh, or I can see kind of be, just being roadblocks is one, just this idea of like understanding the history because that's really important. Um, and then second, just like being open to being uncomfortable and making change. But this, this thing, the history, why I'm concerned about it is the people that understand that there's a historical precedent here. There's some ramifications of these, this long stretch of American history that has bled over. Those people are now older. Yeah. And when you get, you know, when you get, and, and, and a lot of them are coming out of influence now, whether that's at church, whether mm-hmm. that's in government, whatever it is, well, they're the ones that, that would or should at least understand a little bit more of the historical implications, yeah. but they're coming out of influence. Yeah. So now it falls to the younger generation like you and I to understand that historical implication. And, um, and dude, I don't, I, there's a lot that don't, man. I mean, there's a lot of young, yeah. like white, um, guys, even my age, mid thirties that, um, that I think, um, I mean, these are none of my friends that, that I know of, but, but I know that, that the sentiments out there, it's like, man, we've been talking about race a while. Can we just get on with mm-hmm. it? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that is um, that's a misunderstanding of years and years. This is a misunderstanding of the history and what's gotten us here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just one concern is like now it falls to this next generation to understand the history, understand ramifications, then make changes and decisions yeah. accordingly. And that's super important. But this other thing is this idea of change. Like there's a lot of people, again, um, I fear that would that would be like all in on racial reconciliation uh, but then on the drive home, they are thinking to themselves, like, man, we've been talking about this for a while. Like, I think we're kind of past it now. I think we're over. I think, why do we need to talk about this? Um, and and furthermore, they're not willing to make change. Well, this isn't going to get better unless we're willing to make changes. Yeah. And unless we're willing for, for the majority needs to be willing to make some changes. And if it's if it's just, quote unquote, racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation for racial reconciliation's sake, yeah, it's just—it's just a side project. It's just a, exactly. It's a and it's and it's, it's easy an initiative. To get, it's, it's a, a yeah. It's, yep. it's it's a project that you want to ch- quickly check the box off and yep. move on. Yep. But when we place it in the category of the missio day, right? Yep. When we when we place it in the category of um, God spreading His beauty across the whole world, um, when, we, when we set it in the category of Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people worshiping around the throne. In 2011, I had just graduated from college, and I was raising support. I was uh, um, that summer. I was working for a youth group, and um, and there was a uh, there were some white kids that were in this youth group, and the church was a decently well-to-do church. They had some basketball courts on on their grounds, and there are these black kids that would play basketball like every day out there. So I would just go out there just looking for opportunities to, first of all, play basketball, but then also to, to you know, share the gospel with these guys. And um, <laughs> there are these kids that were on the high school, their high school's basketball team, um, their private school's basketball team, that didn't want to come out and play with these black kids because they were, and they were in high school because they were scared. They were like, I don't know, they might like hurt me or whatever. Oh, wow. And I'm like, it was it was a wow, weird it was a crazy. weird it was a weird situation for me too, and um I had to stop and I had to say hey I just kind of shared with them you know every tribe tongue nation are going to be around the throne yeah so I said hey you know that that means there are going to be more people that aren't white in heaven than yeah. are yeah. right and to them it was just like they had ne- they had never even considered yeah that heaven wouldn't be a majority white space right and that's just we're, we're all yeah. So, but but here's where that comes from, dude. This is this is this is one of the catch twenty twos. Like, it, and it's one of the things where a lot of times, like, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. You know, and like at an individual level, like I feel that too. Like, the things I'm best at also can be like mm-hmm. on the inverse. They can be like my worst sins. Dude, a lot of white people are ambitious. Yeah, you know what I mean. They're ambitious, yeah. and you know what the flip. You know what that can lead to? Super, super easy, bro. Is pride. Oh yeah. And so yeah. you have this good thing, like you're ambitious. Okay, great. Um, you know, go make a difference in everything, but man, you have to really watch out for pride because that's what's at the root of it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 thinking that if someone's different in that particular context, um, that you're somehow like they're they could do damage or like that's and and you're somehow better or different or, or more clean. Like who 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 knows what? But that's pride. Like that's mm-hmm. where that starts. Yeah, I, I am curious. Uh, you said you're 27. Hmm? You, you said you're 27 years old now? 31, or 32. Oh, okay. 
Really? It was when I, uh, you, I, you were referencing something. Yeah, yeah. 27. When I was twenty seven, I was um, yeah. When I was so okay, so 30, thirty two. I am curious uh, what it's like to grow up black in America as now you're thirty two years old. So you were born. I was born in eighty four. You're born eighty six, eighty seven, eighty seven. Mm-hmm. My brother's born eighty seven. Shout out to Ben. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the one of the um, one of the things that I think most I think it kind of opened my <laughs> eyes or gave me. Uh, more of an understanding is that book Between the World and Me by Tanisha Coates. Have you ever oh read that? Oh my gosh, yeah. Ta- Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi yeah. Coates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, that that book, this was a few years ago, but, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's extremely well written. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's easy to read. Oh, by the way, I saw um, Denzel Washington reading that book on Equalizer 2. I just watched Equalizer 2 the other week. Oh, yeah. I know you're a Denzel Washington fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. You mentioned that in one of your oh, sermons. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. uh, I don't know if you've... Have you seen Equalizer 2? Oh, yeah, But on sure. the on the rail car scene, he's, he's reading, reading between... between the world and me. Oh, yeah. wow. Anyhow, that, that book was really <laughs> instructive for me. And um, there's just so much stuff, I think, that, that happens that, you know, us white guys just have no idea about. Yeah. So what's it like to grow up as a black man? Um... Well, I've been black my whole life, so I can only, (laughs) I don't know what it's like comparatively, but, um, and, and, you know, my experience is an interesting experience because I grew up, my, 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 my grandfather was basically a hustler in, uh, New York, New Jersey area. And, um, stuff went sour back in the day and they, he picked up and moved the family to Atlanta, uh, basically took his uh, profits from whatever shady dealings he was doing and moved to Atlanta with the family. And um, they they had literally, he, he had the rags to riches story of, you know, growing up in the, pro- my dad, um, uh, growing up in the projects to all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, through my granddad's hustling. Now, not only are they out of the projects, but, they are the only black family in their neighborhood. So, mm. and this is, you know, mid sixties, um, oh, man. you know, so this is, <laughs> it's just an interesting, that's an yeah. interesting dynamic. And, and not only that, like they had money, they had like real at the time they had real money, um, where they're building their own the only black man in that neighborhood. And not only that, they they were building their own house and making, you know, this fabulous thing or whatever. So, uh, anyway, all that kind of crash and burn because there are predominantly illegal activities from what I've been told. I don't know the whole story. Um, but they moved to Atlanta. My dad grew up, uh, or, or kind of came of age, uh, in Atlanta. Um, meets my mom. Anyway, his, his whole, his whole, with me and my sisters, his whole aim was to kind of be the dad that his dad wasn't mm. in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now, my granddad came around um, towards the end of his life, um, to the latter part of his life. He came around. But, you know, there were some real scars there. So my dad, basically, his whole mentality was, I want to be at every basketball game, every football game. I want to provide an environment for uh, for them that I didn't, I didn't get provided for me. So I grew up in the suburbs largely. So largely I grew up in, um, sometimes as the only black kid in my class. Um, um, hmm. but the only black kid in your class, is this a public school or private school? Public school. Public, public school. school. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. The only black kid in your class? So, sometimes. I mean, not all the time, but Is it yeah. a suburb of Atlanta? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean, like I said, that wasn't all the time, but yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, some, some grades, um, or one, sometimes one of two or one of three total, okay. you know, um, uh, <clears throat> so that, that's kind of how, that's, that's kind of how I grew up. But at, but at the same time, my dad, you know, most of his dealings were, you know, he's, he's, a uh, owned a contracting company and most of his dealings were in Atlanta proper. So all my summers and all my weekends were, were spent, you know, in the inner city doing whatever things with him, like odd jobs or, um, fixing, you know, whatever. So I, I kind of grew up in both environments in mm-hmm. a way. Um, excuse me. So, um, largely I always felt like I always got pinned as, um, to some black people, I was a black dude that wasn't black enough. Hmm. Um, I spoke too articulately. I, Hmm. I I enunciated all of the word, all the letters in a particular, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I was, I was, I, I didn't speak uh, black enough. Mm. And then obviously for some white people, I was just way too black. So mm. I've kind of always felt this, um, m- you know, my, my, my existence has been, I've always kind of been a bridge in between both and having mm-hmm. to learn how to maneuver in between two worlds and just learn how to be really me, authentically me mm-hmm. before whoever, whoever I'm before. Thankfully I was really good at sports. Mm. Um, so being good at sports just got me respect from, you know, wh- whatever environment that I came in, you roll mm. a basketball out there and then you're, you're going to respect me kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that's, you know, um, I, I think that, that was a, that was a, that greased the wheels of my, of my childhood and those mm-hmm. kind of things. But yeah, that, that's kind of, that, that's kind of, I also had two sisters that were tough as nails. Mm-hmm. So I, I told, uh, <laughs> You know, obviously, we talked about college football a couple of times. Uh, I played the first few years of my my college uh, in college, and somebody asked me, "What's the hardest you ever been hit?" And I said, "Oh, hands down, it was by my sister." Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> are, you, are you serious? Oh, dead serious. Oh, really? Oh, dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> dead serious. She made me as, a, as as tough as I am. So, I think those are kind of the experiences. So, when you ask me, like, what was it? What what is my black experience been? I mean, I've been called the N word while I'm walking down the street as a kid. You know, I'm 12 years old walking to the store in a majority white environment, and three grown men drive by and just start screaming out the N word for no reason. That's happening. Grown men? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like for 30, sure. 40 years old, or like, like 50? Construction 60? workers, whatever that construction is. Construction workers? Yeah, yeah. They were in a construction, you know, uh, truck and what what's wh- why what, i don't know why what's I, the point you're 12 well, years old what, what, what's going on just with that? because you can just because you can are that, they drunk the, are they drunk no, no that's just, the power dynamic of our of our country but just because you can i've had you know i got into a fight when i was in um in uh, i think the first or second grade because of the same thing a kid just thought it got into a disagreement he thought it was okay it's like second grade he thought it was okay to call me the n-word i knew that it wasn't so I, you know i beat the kid up and uh, we get separated, and my dad comes up to the school flaming hot because I'm getting into a fight. He finds out what happens, and he's totally cool. He's like, "Yep, uh, okay, that's yeah. so." He that's just kind of on that, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's you just learn how to move. Is I I don't know how else to say it other than that. It's like in this world, you learn how to maneuver. You know, mm. 
I've I've had friends who have basically pulled me to the side as I've been um, in majority white spaces in the church and basically say, you know, you'll always be an N-word to them. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. In uh, the church? Oh, absolutely. No, not at our, not at Emmanuel. Uh, well, um, for sure. I mean, yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, not, but, but I mean, but friends. in a church? Oh, absolutely. What, what was the point of them telling you that? Just so um, you know, just, what, just, so, just so, keep, so you know how they're thinking. Keep your guard up. You know, you can't trust those white people. You know, um, and that's the message from some people. I mean, do still. you think that's true at some level? Um, I mean, that's kind of a it's kind of a judgy thing, I guess, to be thinking yeah, about. But do you? Here's the way I'll say this, um, because there's, I think there is truth to it, and I think, um, I think you as a black, and this is the dudes that I mentor now um, from a distance. Um, the reality is there are white people that would love for me to be in their spaces, not for me, but because I could probably bring some more, I could, I could check off the box for them. And you've got to, you've got to be able to discern that and you got to be able to protect yourself from that. Cause that's not a safe environment for mm-hmm. you or for anybody that you're bringing yourself, mm-hmm. you, you're bringing, bringing to that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, there's some truth to mm-hmm. that. Um, but I, I mean, uh, yeah. By by and large, I think um, I don't fully subscribe to this. But James, uh, I think it's James Baldwin said, "To be black is to be perpetually in a rage." Hmm. Um, and I think there is, there's always a guard that I'm, there's always a lens that I'm looking through um, because I know that. Um, as a black man, so I put, give, give this as an example. At Emmanuel, a place that I love, the elders whom I love, the pastors whom I love and trust. Um, when I step on stage at Emmanuel, I have to be very guarded with my words and very guarded with the way that I come across and with the things that I will say and won't say, with the jokes that I will make and won't make. And that's because I'm representative of more than myself. And I have to recognize mm-hmm. that. Um, so that's an oppor- that's that's a that's an uh, that's a responsibility that I think I perpetually carry with me, and that's just that's just a part of the job description. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's just a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you're gonna and you have that too. Is like I really appreciate that. That's a conscious thought that you have because. It goes with leadership. It certainly goes with pastor. It certainly goes with preaching. Yeah, you know? for sure. Like for you sure. are, you are in a sense representing Emmanuel when yeah. you preach. Like yeah. even to the outside world. Yeah, you know, and people who who might stumble upon a sermon one day or watch a, a service online or something like, oh, what's this Emmanuel Nashville about? And they happen to stumble across you preach. Like you do represent the body in a certain yeah. way. So and to some, some people, of good that you. And to some people, I represent black people, and that's what I mean. Like. Maybe even oh, to some of our, okay. and I don't know this to be an absolute fact, but to, but my conscious thought is to some, even Emmanuel people, maybe I represent blackness. So oh, the way that gotcha. I carry myself on stage is paramount mm. for the way that maybe they interact with others or the way that they see black people generally. Sure. Okay. Well, we can make that a really good thing then actually, right? Because well, yeah. if you're, if you're going to represent in a sense, you're preaching and you're representing the black folks of Emmanuel, um, that's positive. Yes. It's very positive. It, it should be. And it, and it is, and it can be. Um, but it's also, it's also a conscious, I, I, 
I often feel that there are certain things, certain jokes that I'm not afford, or not even just jokes, mm. but there are certain, there's a certain amount of leeway that I don't afford myself. Not that other people are pressuring me or anything like that, but that I don't afford myself because I understand that the role that I am, that I'm in is representative and has uh, bearings on other people other than myself. Sure. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. um, it just, it just makes, uh, it just makes it important. Um, it makes it important. The things that you say in the way that you carry mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. I guess that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's the dual, it's a dual consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. that uh, I think I, I want to say that, uh, Tanasi Coates talks about that at least a little bit in uh in between the world and me. I think he does. Um, yeah, I think he does. And one of the things that was in that book, and I don't know if you'd experienced this too, but uh, just simple things like you know walking through the neighborhood at night, walking back home or something from a friend's house or who knows, um, or getting uh, pulled over by a cop. Oh yeah, yeah. I was in college. Um, I'm in college, right? A friend of mine and, and myself, we're dressed in polo shirts, right? I'm in a blue polo, as blue polo shirt and some jeans, like as regular as can be. He's in a red polo shirt and some jeans. And two cop cars pull up on us, turn their lights on, step out, put their lights in our face, and basically said, you guys got to be careful about what colors you wear around. And I'm like, he's in a red shirt, I'm in a blue shirt. That would be competing gangs, first of all. Um, but basically go on to interrogate us for about 20 minutes before we, uh, walk to our friend's house Wow! just for, for whatever reason, just for whatever reason. And that's just a re so it's like when you, now let me speak about myself when I'm in a store or when I'm in inter- interacting with police officers, I'm just very careful about the movements that I make, the language that, uh, the, the, the words that I say, I'm just very it's very, there's very little room to have your guard down. Um, so for me to, to, to operate in, in America is to, um, because I heard, I forgot who I heard say this, uh, but there's this phrase that is just so, uh, true to how I function, but it's an assumption of criminality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I find myself unfairly, of course, it's not, it's not right, but I find myself having to fight against, um, what I feel to be an assumption of criminality. So when Mm -hmm. I'm, when I'm interacting with police officers in a given space, or when I'm interacting in a store, uh, I make it really clear that, you know, I pick the thing up, I look at it and I put it down really clearly, you know, because I don't want there to be any confusion as to what I'm doing in the store, right. how I'm, how I'm operating. I hate that, dude. Dude, I'm, I'm sorry. Dude, I, I don't, I just hate that. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Like I, um, I have a high level of, I think we could call it respect. It's not distrust. It's respect. But like I, I conduct myself pretty carefully around cops too. It's just yep. the way I'm wired. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I'll be honest with you, dude. Like if I had, if I had, uh, if one of my sons was black at some point before he starts to drive, I'm having a conversation with him that I'm not having with Lincoln yeah. about if you get pulled over by a police officer, here's some things to be extra careful with. And I'm not going to, I don't have that conversation with him, but I would, if I had a black son, like that sucks, dude. Yeah. 
There's a pastor in Memphis, I believe it is, and he has, I think, two white sons and two black sons that are adopted and they're around the same age. And um, he was talking about his own revelation as to like, oh, there, this is a real thing. This is not something that black people have just made up. He had his two, uh, his four sons were playing around a pool. All of them were running and acting a fool, breaking the rules, right? And um, the lifeguard blows the whistle and kind of yanks up his two black sons and is looking for his, the black son's parents. And here comes this white guy's pastor, and he starts chewing out this, uh, this lifeguard because he says, yo, these are my sons. And he's like, what, these are your sons? And he's like, well, your sons are being bad. And he's like, no, 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 I was watching them. All four of my sons were being yeah. bad. And you yanked up these two kids. What's yep. up? Yep. So it's just that, again, it's yeah. that assumption of, and, and, and again, I, I, it, it all comes back down to the church to me because yep. there are some people's knee-jerk reactions. There's been this imprint of whatever you want to call it, criminality, racism, whatever, whatever the thing is, that, that knee-jerk reaction uh, that breeds distrust and fear. Yes. And only the, only the gospel can change it. Yes. Only the gospel can, can heal it. Yeah. And only the church can implement, we are the pillar of the truth. Yes. Right? Yes. We are the, we, so these things are, I, if I was holding my breath for the, the United States government or mm-hmm. for any other institutions to, it, there's a lot of power dynamics that, that are mm-hmm. at play here. And if I'm holding my breath for the power dynamics that be right. to willfully change or transform things, I'm yep. going to, I'm going to be holding my breath for a while. Yeah, no, I totally agree. But in the church, it's, that's an, it, that's a discipleship issue. How yeah. we, how we handle power specifically, yeah. how we handle opportunity specifically, that is a gospel issue because yes. what have you been given uh, what what have you received that you have not been given? Yes. Right, like yep. everything that we've been given is a gift, and therefore should be freely given and yes. and freely. You are a steward of your time, talent, treasures, experiences, yep. etc. Yeah, and therefore um, are expected to steward those and shepherd yeah. those for others. Yeah, totally. Are you familiar at all with the history of cannabis in America and black community, black culture, marijuana? Yeah. Um, it depends on what you're asking me. Well, here's the reality of that situation. Was that the, the, in the initial laws in America against marijuana, there was a lot of racism behind that. Oh, I don't know if you knew that. I think the, I think, I think there's a lot of laws. Well, I totally agree with that. The unfortunate <laughs> yeah. part of it was, is marijuana was very popular in the black communities and like jazz clubs and yeah. stuff. Plant, natural. Yeah. Can overdose. Yeah. You can't, no one's ever overdosed from marijuana. You know how many people overdose from alcohol every year? Oh, yeah. About 80,000. Oh, yeah. And everyone drinks, you know, everyone mm-hmm. drinks. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's kind of upheld in our society. Like, yeah. it's kind of, a, anyhow. Um, but, and, and it's not addictive. So yeah. you, you can you can do whatever you want with marijuana for as long as you want. You stop and you don't have health benefits right. coming. That's not true for alcohol. Right. That's not true for a whole lot of, that's not true for coffee, bro. You right. try to come off a of coffee. Right. Um, but the unfortunate part is, like so many black people got put in jail, males yeah. for marijuana, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if the laws behind it were racist to begin with now, and it's popular in the black communities. And now a lot of black men are winding up in jail because of this, which is a pretty harmless, you know, thing. And now, now they're even, now that the state laws are changing, they're letting some people out of jail yep. that were in jail to begin mm-hmm. with from a charge with marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, and and I'm sure there's like a ton more, but that one I know just a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, 
I there's a there's another really great book by Michelle Alexander called um uh The New Jim Crow. And um she just basically talks about the uh uh the prison industrial complex and and basically how the new slavery is locking people up and you get free exactly you get free like the thirteenth amendment uh it out it outlaws slavery except for those that are criminals and then under uh if if someone's persecuted as a criminal then you can uh force them to do slave labor. And she basically shows from the very beginning, from very soon after um, after the abolition of slavery, that black people were um, uh, basically there were these laws that uh, I'm trying not to totally butcher it, but there are these laws that were enacted that um, for people that were newly released from slavery, right? Mm. That if you didn't have a job and you didn't have a home, you go to jail, right? It's like, okay, I don't. So what are you going to do? Either you're going to go to sharecropping and basically back to your slave labor so you don't go to prison, or they're going to scoop you up and they're going to make you legally make you a slave because you're a criminal. And that's been the whole game. That's been the whole cat and mouse game. And she takes that through Michelle Alexander takes that through up until present. And the, the, the cocaine laws, if you have uh, an ounce of cocaine versus a powdered cocaine versus an ounce of crack cocaine, there's an 18 times difference in the, uh, in the, I believe it's 18 times. You get 18 times the Golly. amount of time in jail or prison if you have crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. Hmm. Why? Because one is an elitist, uh, more predominantly wealthy right. and white drug yes. versus one that is a predominantly black and brown, yes. uh, black and brown drug. Yep. So it's the same game remixed yep. over and over. Yep. And again, it comes down to that assumption of criminality and it's done you know, it's done what, more what, too. What was that book again? The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Uh, and does it, is it about racism particularly or racism and drugs or racism in the laws or kind of what's the... Um, it's about the New Jim Crow laws. Okay. okay. And um, right. basically... I'll be interested in that. I'll check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. A, it's a yeah. really great read. Yeah. There's also, there's also a, a documentary. It's a truncated version of the book um, on Netflix. I think it's still on that. It was on Netflix a couple of years ago. It's called mm-hmm. the 13th. It's about the 13th amendment and mm. how the 13th amendment didn't abolish slavery. It just remixed it. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. well, you're right about, you're right about the um, powder cocaine versus crack cocaine mm-hmm. and, and some of the differences there. I recently read a book that was recommended called food of the gods. Mm. And um, it's a, the second half I'd say is, is maybe worth reading if someone's interested in this type of subject matter. It's not about racism at all, but it is about, um, it's about the history of drugs in general mm-hmm. and how certain ones are not just okayed, but like promoted. Mm-hmm. And so in dominator type societies, um, tobacco, mm-hmm. um, coffee mm-hmm. and sugar mm-hmm. are very promoted in those types of societies. And then you have other cultures that would be more like into marijuana mm-hmm. and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and those trends really like, it's so true, man. Like, um, it, it's, it's interesting how like certain things like that go with certain cultures and mm-hmm. then we demonize things that happen to be outside of that. Um, so who, who knows where all that'll go in the church? I, I, and the, I, and the, the marijuana thing specifically is, it is really, it's really a sore spot because now as legalization seems more and more inevitable, I mean, 
it's already there's been a certain amount in Atlanta that's already been decriminalized, mm-hmm. and more and more it's becoming decriminalized. And I think it's a matter of time before it's federally mm-hmm. legalized, even. But as it's happening in different places, California, Colorado, and other places, it isn't lost on many black people that now you've got white people making millions. Exactly. Making millions off of what their cousins and uncles and brothers are imprisoned for. Yes. The same kind of entrepreneurship, the same kind of, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's the same product. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a difference in it used to be illegal and now it's, mm-hmm. now it's legal, but functionally, those people are still in jail. Right. Um, yeah, to this day, there's people in America that are in jail related to marijuana charges. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about doing hard time, too doing hard time and we're not talking about we're talking about marijuana Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's crazy crazy absolutely well i don't want to keep you all night yeah we could talk about privatized prisons and those kind of things but that's yeah that's a whole nother maybe maybe darker uh maybe next time criminal link yeah what else you want to say anything you want to close with i don't know man i don't know um at the end of the day I am fully convinced that the church, the reason I'm a pastor is I'm fully convinced that the church is God's vehicle of um, all forms of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Reconcil- if, if, if people are going to come to know Jesus and g- cross from death to life, it's going to be the church that has its hand in that. Mm-hmm. And if, if, um, if people are going to be reconciled to one another, the church is going to be the vehicle um, by which it happens societally. When we talk about systematic injustice and systematic racism and those kind of things, it, it's the only institution that's going to be able to, um, and I've got some specific reasons behind this that I guess we can get into the next time, but the only, the church is the, is the institution that God has implemented mm-hmm. um, for the breaking down of those systems. So mm-hmm. um, church is really important. Mm-hmm. And church membership is really important mm-hmm. to be submitted to uh, a local body and, and locking arms with um, and pressing into uh, what God is doing in the local church is extremely mm-hmm. important if you want to be a part of the change that God is doing in the world. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. And one point that should be made, too, as, as it kind of relates to racial, racial reconciliation in the church, too, is... You know, you don't fix really any problem by just like chasing after what you don't want all the time. Like you need to be aware of those things and you need to go hard after like what you're after, mm-hmm. you know. And so what we need to be after as churches is is like serving and loving and um, like um, just being in love with the real Jesus as a body together, you know. Yeah. And um, And so I think that's shoot, you know, if someone's looking for a place to start, that's actually a great place to start is like deepen your relationship with Christ, learn more about him and his scripture. What does he say about our relationship like horizontal and how that should be? What is the heart of Jesus for Mm -hmm. people, for all people? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like that's a, man, that's a great place to start because as we come closer to Christ, obviously we're coming closer together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, well, dude, I love and respect you as a friend, likewise, man. as a brother, and I love and respect you as my pastor. Yeah, thanks for being a pastor, Emmanuel. Man. Yeah, man. Seriously, it's a great, it's a great joy. We are, we are grateful to have you. Yeah, glad to and be. And you here. are having a uh, an impact. Yeah.
It's hard to believe it's been a year already. I know. It's kind of crazy. Congratulations. Right? Yeah. yeah man. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. All right.